Hello again, everybody. If you are indeed hearing the sound of my voice, it was a big week in wrestling if you overlooked those pesky wrestling matches. And I've been out of the loop, so today I'm getting looped back in. All this and more, and some of you may hear it. And to join me, Hawaiian Brian, the podcasting lion, the king of the Arcadian Vanguard Podcast Network, Mr. Co-host to you. If you need re-looped, he'll loop you to your loopy. The great Brian Last, everybody. Aloha, Jim. A pleasure to be here. If we are here, indeed, wherever we I'm are. I'm over here now. <laughs> yes, you are, and yes, I am. Uh, so, we have tried to explainify what's been going on with the shows the past couple of weeks, and still we're seeing on Twitter, I think there's comments from the thousands more people that have been admitted to the official cult of Cornette Facebook group. There's panic in the streets, people literally running around like their heads are on fire, that we are somehow discontinuing or have discontinued the podcast. Or, I mean, only two weeks, my God. They can't go without their fix. The cult of Cornette got to corny on their back. We've been talking. It just hasn't been in all the places that it normally is because we thought, and, and, Rightfully enough, I think, we surmised that the end of one month and the beginning of the next month would be the apropos time to do the listeners a favor and upgrade our services, upgrade our delivery, upgrade our transmission or emissions or whatever the case may be, and go to a new what is is it the goddamn server again? I have a box of server still in my garage where Hotchkiss built the website. Did we need a bigger server? Is it a platform? Is it a fucking megaphone? Whatever the fuck it is. All of the above. All of those things. Yes. And more. And more. Now with tomato. But anyway, it, we're because we, and we got a heck of a story we're going to tell when all this is completed, but it's a fluid oh. situation. It's a fluid. Oh, it's, it's still evolving. What a story. But we got... How many times recently have you been accused of killing a $30 million deal? Well, only twice <laughs> by the same guy as, you know, as you, but... Um, Go but fuck was, yourself! More to come. Eh, now, now, now. Calling people ain't gonna do any good right now. <laughs> anyway, what I'm saying to you is, is that we got uh, uh, stuck with a, bla a bad platform or whatever the fuck a while back people were having trouble with and so we're, we're going to time and trouble and effort and expense we're upgrading we're bringing more things in-house we're hiring some people and we thought into one month beginning the next month good time for a transition but it was a holiday at the beginning of this month and i think everybody around the world may not know but when the united states when a holiday happens Nobody works for the week before and the week after that holiday either. Because then they can just say, oh, it's the holiday. That's what the problem is. And then you go back to work and it's summer Friday. Well, there you go. And then before you know it, it's Arbor Day. And the whole thing starts all over again. So anyway, it's taking a little longer. But we can assure you, folks, if you are, it, this is going up on YouTube, where apparently now we have learned there is a completely separate audience. Oh, yeah. Always. That is been. not, uh, uh, not uh, absorbing the podcast through the traditional podcast route. And now I'm getting, I'm getting weather updates, by the way, flashing on my screen 
high wind alert, lightning nearby. Brian, I've got a headset on. It's plugged into the wall. If lightning hits my house and goes through my brain, will I suddenly be like a superhero with mutant powers and a computer brain? Like a cat drinking nitroglycerin? I don't know. If it got to you, does that mean it went through the people in the wall? Well, they would be a kind of a buffer, kind of a filter to where it might not hit me full strength. But that's why I'm thinking, is it anything like the gamma radiation theory where if you get you don't get melted, but you get close enough to it, you become the human torch or whatever the case may be. I could I could become a computer brain if I got hit by lightning while wearing these headphones. But would that be a cruel twist of fate because you hate computers? Well, no, I just mean the smartest man in the world, you know, like a fucking mega genius with the giant brain like that episode of The Outer Limits where the fucking guy had the giant, <laughs> giant veiny head. I believe was it it was Robert Culp, was it not? I'm not sure. But not nevertheless, sure. and then I'm thinking, well, if I did get hit by lightning and become the smartest person in the world, how would anybody know the difference? But back to the podcast. So, no, there's been vicious rumors going around. We're not stopping the podcast. No, we're not going to make you pay for it and and no. do it on cassette tape and deliver it to you in the mail and you send us a check every month. We're not going to YouTube exclusively, No, even though we have pretty much commandeered that space for our own. And we're trying to upgrade everything so that you get more programs in an easier-to-listen-to fashion. It's just taking a little while. That's right. You're going to get more, and more is going to be better, and we're working on the better right now, and it'll be all delivered to you next week or by the time you hear this this week, right now. I don't know when you're going to listen to this. And the good thing is they'll be able to listen to it anytime they want to. That's right. And yeah. we are committed to keeping our shows free. So don't yeah. worry. You're not going to have to go to a paywall to buy this show. And by the way, goddammit, since, you know, you never know, they might be hearing this program even before we do it at this rate. Well, no, that's actually impossible. That would not be possible. Why? We, we could, now, we, that would be a paywall. If we That could, would be something that we could get people to pay for if they could pay for the right to hear the program before we actually do it. Right, but the problem is we wouldn't have done it, so there'd be no show to listen to before we've done it because we haven't done it. That's why I said it'd be a great paywall. How much would you pay for that? Fuck, uh, all kinds of money. Wouldn't you pay all a kinds of money? Like <laughs> different denominations? All, all kinds of money of different denominations, non sequential serial numbers. <laughs> but would you would you pay a lot of money if you could experience, no pun intended, something that hadn't actually happened yet? I would pay, all and then kinds you could tell money. whether you whether you liked it or not. All kinds of money: peso, Canadian dollar, the euro. The the drachma? The drachma? The drachma? All and see, kinds that, of money. that way you if you could if you could pay to experience something before it actually happened, then you would know ahead of time whether you liked it or not. So when it did actually happen, you'd know whether or not to watch it or listen to it or be right. involved in it. But here's the problem. What if Jim Cornette's bored one day? and decides to pay all kinds of money for this access and listens to himself before he's done the show, wouldn't that change history? No, because I'm never bored. I got so much to fucking do, I never have time to sit around and just 
contemplate my navel or my taint or whatever it is people study when they're doing the yoga shit with their fucking what? knees up around their ears. I don't fucking know. When they do yoga, they're not actually studying their body parts. They're actually trying to make their body stronger and... I don't look mind. like they're trying to use our fine Manscaped products. And those spots are headed back soon, too, folks. More on that later. But and the ExpressVPN guys are okay in the wall. Yeah, well, I've, I put some sandwiches in there and a bottle of pop. They can split it. And and they'll be okay till we get back on that uh, that track also. But anyway, so sooner or later... I will be the smartest man in the world, and our transition will be completed, and you'll be hearing things. Why, it'll sound like quadraphonic stereo. That's right. And congratulations are due to the shows pretending they have an audience and that they're number one this week. We'll be back well, we, next week to take back all that is ours. We took a week off to let somebody else have a chance because it wasn't really fair. And what it like in the in the kids' leagues, after they get like 20 runs ahead or whatever, don't they generally say, okay, don't don't make the other little tykes fucking cry. Ease up, or we're gonna call this, or what is that ruling from the commissioner? Well, at a certain point in a game, if there's a lead by a certain amount of runs. There's a chance the game could be called, not professionally, but at least in the Little League. Yeah, that way you see you're the kid expert, because you got some. So I go to people who have experienced these things. I was one once. You was one once. See, they, you got that going over me, too. I was born 37. But so anyway, we took a week off to let other people have a fucking opportunity, because we're nice that way. And anyway, I took a week off of, uh, so far it's been a week, almost. Uh, more than that, I told you about this. You were one of the few people to hear about this for reasons that will become clear when I tell the people about this. My fucking phone. Phone is out. Since last, I guess, Sunday night, when we had the storms, and you may hear some thunder here today, as I said, but we had storms last weekend also, both days we were trying to do this, these programs. and. So Monday morning, I need to make a phone call. So I pick up the phone, and instead of a dial tone, I've got this loud, staticky, droning, <laughs> just like that, like, <laughs> and I, what the fuck is this? And I try to dial. Actually, it's push button now, but you know, it's still the terminology. And nothing. All I get is with static. And so I was, oh, fuck. Now, there are a couple people, you being one of them that day, that I had to talk to. Because normally I don't have time to make a lot of phone calls anyway, as, as everybody who's called me left me a message and I haven't called them back knows. And to be honest, the telephone, with all the other projects and shit we got going on the, the telephone is low priority because i talked to a guy that did morning radio and commiserated with him he was saying the same thing when you talk so much you get tired of talking and don't want to talk to anybody for like just regular pleasure it's got to be okay i've got to call so and so and get such and such wrapped up you you can identify right right who do you who do you talk to? Well, don't name the person, but do you talk to anybody regularly, at least once a week, on a personal basis on a telephone, or is it all business? 
Well, you can mix business with personal, but I have people I speak to regularly every day. Well, you in the do morning. business with people that you you know enjoy speaking to or know on a personal basis, but you don't just yeah. call up to ask about Aunt Aunt Fanny's bladder. Well, no, I leave people alone. Plus, I don't have time for that shit. I'm dealing with people I do business with, and again, yes. when you do business with people over many years, you form a good relationship with them. So. Well, yes. there, there you go. Well, there you go. You beat around the bush and agreed with me. Anyway, so I, but I needed to make a phone call and I get meh. So I think, God damn it, I got to call AT&T. Because I'm talking about now, folks, for those of you who may be new to the program, I'm not talking about one of these fucking cell phones. I'm talking about my actual goddamn legitimate plugged into the wall home telephone that I've had for many, many, many decades. And here comes the rain. So how do you call to report your phone doesn't work? Well, I got a cell phone. But once again, there's a, there's a rub here. Because as you know, Brian, and as anybody who knows me well and currently knows, I keep my cell phone in the glove compartment of my Black Beauty, and I only use it or even turn it on if I'm out somewhere and I got to call home to Stacy or I'm lost or late, need directions or whatever. And since I go so few places these days, that is several months goes by before I ever turn my cell phone on. But I go out in the truck and I get it and I bring it back in. I find my AT&T phone bill, get the customer service number. You know what AT&T stands for, don't you, Brian? American Telephone and, and Telegraph. Telegraph. That's right. One of the oldest, most stable and secure companies in the United States of America. I mean, a lot of fortunes were made on AT&T here in this country, right? You should hear what the guys from IT&T say. Well, I figure that at least they should have some customer service that can get this shit going, right? So anyway... So I call AT&T on a cell phone and I get an automated deal and I got to press the buttons and then I got to say what my problem is. And then they tell me automatedly, well, instead of having you hang on, we'll call you back in 20 to 30 minutes. Well, and, and first, by the way, I was trying to report my number being out. But when I call them, the automated thing says, we do not show that this number has an account with us. No shit, because it's a cell phone. I can't call you on the phone. It has an account with you because it doesn't work. So then they finally, they do call me back. Except instead of a representative of American Telephone and Telegraph, I'm talking to Apu from somewhere in Bangladesh. And I can barely understand what he's saying. And by the way, I can barely understand what anybody's saying on his fucking phone. I should backtrack. I don't know how to work this fucking phone. <laughs> because I had the same cell phone from like 2007 until about a year ago, right? And it the flip phone. And it worked because I knew how to call people. I knew how to answer calls that were coming to me. And I also knew how to go to the voicemail. And it also would show me on the screen if somebody had called me and I'd missed them. So I could press a button and call them back. That's all I needed from the phone because it's a fucking phone. It's not a goddamn movie camera. It's not a goddamn 
home fucking entertainment system. It's a fucking phone. Anyway, about a year ago, the phone people send me a letter saying that the phone is too old and it won't go, it's not going to work after such and such date. Well, I say that's bullshit because it worked just fine. And besides that, my mother had a phone for 40 years. It worked just fine. It worked the same the last day she had it as it did the first. This thing's only 15 years old. But they say, no, it ain't going to work anymore, but we'll give you a smartphone. Well, no, I'm not going to be having that. Before I'll have one of those, I'll just not have one. And then Stace says, well, do you need it because of emergencies? So she goes out and finds me another flip phone. But since I haven't traveled anywhere, I've barely turned this thing on more than a couple times. And I don't know. There's no voicemail set up. I don't know. It's got different functions and it shows things in different ways. You got to hit different buttons. So I've just had it in the fucking truck. Well, now AT&T calls me back and I said, my phone is out. All I get is a droning noise. It let me check this for you, sir. This may take a few minutes. All right. It takes a while. And he comes back and finally says, sir, it, the, it is the wiring outside your home. I said, okay, I figured that because my goddamn house has not been blown up here lately. So it has to be something somewhere else. So he says, there's a problem with the phone lines in the area. It's not in my house. It's outside the house. I said, I'm, I'm aware of that. My house is fine. It has to be somewhere outside. Well, I've been told by a supervisor or someone higher up than him, apparently. There is much damage. And we had severe storms the night before. So now it makes sense. So I couldn't under, I said, so what you're saying to me, I'm trying to sum this up. What you're saying to me is you're saying that because of the storms in this area somewhere, a bunch of the lines have been taken down and they are working on fixing it. And I swear to God, he, he said something to the effect of, yes, the lines have been ripped from their moorings. <laughs> I'm like, what the f And, you know, I don't know where the AT&T... <laughs> yes, the lines have been ripped from their moorings. I have not heard it. <laughs> Putting it that way is pretty funny. And, uh, and I, I mean, I've been watching the local news and we, the, everything's been fine since last weekend. And I haven't seen, I don't know where the AT&T center is. Is it in fucking Wardburg, Tennessee? And that's my area. I don't know what the fuck, but the thing is still out. It still won't work. And I, and because when I asked the guys, what is the estimate repair time for this? Possibly a week. What? And so I'm thinking, how is this massive damage? This is AT&T. It's like the Ford Motor Company of telephones. How can it take a week to fix anything that wasn't a result of a nuclear blast? Is there anything else in the area down? Or is it just the phone lines? Well, I don't know because I'm not just calling random numbers around my neighborhood to see whether they work or not. I'm taking fucking no, this guy's <laughs> word. I mean, like on TV, is there anything about power lines down still in any of the areas? No, around? no. The only word that I have that many, 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 not a few, but many 
Lines are down. Is this guy telling me this? On Monday, it's now Saturday morning. So I'm going to call again on Monday. It's been a week and see if I can get somebody closer to home that may have a better eyeball on the situation. So now, then all week, I've not been able to get any phone calls, which actually I have not missed, to be honest with you. It's been, it's been good in that way. But I know people are saying, well, you got the cell phone. Why don't you call people on the If I call people on the cell phone, because I've done this before years ago when I was traveling, if I knew somebody in a town, I would say, okay, I'm going to have this number when I'm in your town so we can go have lunch. It's my cell phone, but don't ever call it unless I'm in town or on the road because elsewise I never turn it on. Invariably, not only will these people call and leave voicemails that I will get six months later the next time I turn the fucking phone on, but people have now started apparently texting me without my knowledge. And, and I know these are, again, not people who know me well or currently, but maybe they're 20 years ago and they think, well, I guess he texts like everybody else. Silly boys. So I don't do any of that shit. So... So I've just been keeping the phone in case, and Stace was in at her mom's in California for the week. So I was technologically drifting and I just say, you know what? Fuck it. Me and Harley are going to have a nice week and not talk to anybody. And it worked out well. I'm thinking of continuing. I don't know now that I've said this, whether I'm going to call AT&T on Monday or not. Maybe it'd get their attention if I stopped paying the bill. Jim, I have an article here from AV Club about the actor Michael Sarah on the uh, set of the movie Barbie. What? Michael Sarah didn't get to be in the Barbie group chat because he's one of those just a flip phone guys. <laughs> so you're not the only one still holding on to it. And I actually read an article recently that in some corner of the world, or some corner of America, I guess, the flip phone is making a little bit of a comeback. Well, again, the flip, I hate this fucking phone to begin with, but I hate the smartphones worse. And I'll tell you why with this thing, you've got to hold it like you're trying to pick up a turd by the clean end with the, your thumb and middle finger, because elsewise you're going to, as Stace says, I keep covering up the goddamn hole I'm supposed to speak into with my thumb. So she can't understand what I'm saying. Cause I'm trying to hold it like a goddamn phone. I want a phone with an ear hole where you listen and you can kind of put it over your ear so it covers your ear for those of us with impaired hearing so I can fucking hear and I want the other end of it to be in front of my mouth so I feel like I'm talking into something instead of just idly talking to myself like some fucking homeless bum in a subway with nothing in front of my face where anybody's going to hear it. Jim, I have another article here from oh, CNN God. Business. By Ramishah Maroof, Gen Z has a hey, new... Hey, that's the same guy that I talked to about my phone. No, it wasn't. Stop it. Gen Z has a new vintage technology to obsess over. First, it was disposable cameras. Then it was low-rise jeans. Now Gen Z's latest vintage obsession is the flip phone. That mid-1990s era phone that has suddenly become oh-so-popular with millennials. So you see that? It's starting to gain popularity again. Well, because the smartphones are even worse when you're trying to hold them because they're fucking flat. 
and you can't hear and you can't talk into I'm, I'm listening and then I'm turning it in front of my face to talk. You know, you can get a flip and phone. All of the, all of the, uh, well, I've got one. That's what I, but the smartphones are worse than the flip phone where it's so small and you can't fucking have it uh, in your ear and in front of your mouth at the same time because the smartphone has all the invisible buttons where you accidentally <laughs> either butt dial Cambodia or fucking somehow, you know, send up a DEFCON 3 alert to NORAD by pressing the wrong button with your pinky finger when you're trying to goddamn hold the thing. Or potentially it could fucking catch on fire and blow your head up. So I don't like those either. <laughs> well, you went to the whole other end of the extreme right there. Blow your head up? Well, you, you never know what these things are going to fucking do. You ever see those stories in the news about lithium-ion batteries? Just like someone put their bike in their apartment and then the whole building went up in flames. Well, you can't mail those. They ask you at the post office. That's right. And they believe you when you (laughs) say, they just ask you, did you mailing anything hazardous? No. Okay. Good for me. Well, you look like an honest person with a trustworthy face. I'll hand them a flat envelope. That's got two flat pieces of paper in it. They'll say, is there anything hazardous, liquid, perishable, fragile, explosive, Whatever the fuck, I'll say I didn't have room to fit it in. It's like you're describing all the various clicks in AEW. Hazardous. Hazardous. Explosive. <laughs> fragile. Flammable. <laughs> fragile. Yes. Very fragile. Or fragile, as they say. Um, but anyway, so I don't know what I'm ever going to talk to anybody again. So they're not here in the podcast. My phone is out. Maybe somebody's going to think I have just said, fuck it. And and gone to fucking, you know, some island in the South Pacific. So is this the comeback episode? I, how can they miss us if we haven't been away? See, this is all a, a marketing ploy. All right. Well, let's move on. Speaking of marketing ploys, which this is definitely not, but this has become one of the more popular segments on the program. And because we're... Somewhat behind here also. I've been trying to still got the email, unfortunately. Hopefully that'll go out soon. But Reggie's Corner, we're behind on honoring some of our fine furry friends. So I thought we would, before we get any further behind, we would make sure to include in this program, whether anybody hears or not, some tributes on Reggie's Corner. Reggie's Corner We're here to talk about your good boys and girls Reggie's Corner We're so sorry they're dead now <laughs> Oh, and that's... <laughs> Doesn't get old <laughs> Just And it lasts, it, you can't get it out of your head Um, Fast Eddie from Arizona, uh, unfortunately lost his 19-year-old cat, Mona. And uh, unfortunately, he just said it was a bad prognosis at the local veterinary hospital, I guess at the age of 19. But the cats seem to live significantly longer than dogs, don't they? Is that kind of one of those things where like women's life expectancy is longer than men's because they... They drive us to an earlier death. Is that the same with the, with the cats tormenting the dogs? Well, I don't know. I think a lot of it is also dogs more active than cats. Cats seem to have a lazier lifestyle. 
Well, now you're you're just blaming an entire, just painting an entire species with the same sedentary brush. In a sense, yes. Moving what do you, on. Hey, what do you think? What do you think of the name Mona? That's a name you don't hear anymore. Um, there was a young lady named Mona that used in Arkansas that used to send me all the Memphis newspaper clippings and things when I was a mere photographer and a wonderful girl. And then I became a heel manager and she sent me a letter to who do you think you are acting like that and saying those things? You no good, sorry, gum bump and sack of snake feces. Anyway, speaking of snake feces, Paul from Harrogate. Uh, unfortunately, no, Paul. It's about snake feces? No, no, no. It's just a little jab at Paul. But we've heard from Paul before. He's Laika was his uh, furry friend that we mentioned before, but he's now he's lost his cat whiskey to kidney disease, and, and whiskey has joined Laika, Missy, and Speedy. And uh, about whiskey, basically, Paul wrote, he was the perfect cat to have if you wanted a dog. I taught him to sit like a dog when he was 14. He always liked hugs with family, freshly cooked chicken, and enough catnip to knock out full colonies of animals. So, again, whiskey, we're sorry about that. And, well, Paul, we're sorry about whiskey. Again, in whiskey, if we had been talking to you, we'd be sorry about Paul. And there's the thunder, and we're all going to hell, bro. Wow, that's on your side, for the record. Yeah, yeah. Pat! I'm not sure where he's from, but he lost his Shih Tzu poodles. Willie and Sasha, they were 17 years old, and they passed one month apart. Wow. Um, 17, that's incredible. Yeah, that is, that's getting old for the dogs, the puppies. Sasha had several medical issues, and about a month later, Willie suffered what appeared to be a heart attack. So that's just a miserable time period. But, Pat, we're sorry about Willie and Sasha. And here is one. <laughs> certainly, certainly that is one. Here's one all the way. Brian Reggie's corner has now reached Bahrain. Ahmed from Bahrain wrote, it saddens me to say that after 24 years of life, we had to put down our Persian cat, Hessa. 24. Wow, how is that even possible? He says, we saved her in 2016. Listen to this now for coincidences. Saved her in 2016 off the streets of Manama? Manama? I don't know my Bahrain geography. Manama? Manama? So, <laughs> <laughs> wherever it, it's Panama, but with an M. So you guys figure it out. But they saved her and took her to the vet and discovered she was microchipped. And the microchip said that she was born in 1999 in Kentucky. How is that and possible? They contacted the owners. The owners told them that they had apparently lived there and moved back home in 2014. So I don't know how the what the chain of custody was of the cat between the time they moved back and a couple years later, but maybe she had already been lost or whatever. But nevertheless, so Ahmed kept her ever since, and and he said we had to put her down because she was deaf and blind due to age. She would go around in circles and bump into everything and would even piss and shit and walk around in it because she was clueless. So I guess that might have been a 
an indication there it was time to do something. Well, I hope they can uh, remember the cat. Jesus Christ. <laughs> hey, wow. folks, who says that we don't have special effects on this program? And uh, Leonard. From Manama. He, he terms himself Mr. Hoo-Hoo from Hee Haw, Ohio. <laughs> I think we actually termed him that <laughs> one time. Yes, his, his last name is H, and his first name of his town is H in Ohio. So Mr. Hoo-Hoo from Hee Haw, Ohio, uh, lost his 12-year-old Maltese Pippi. Pippi was diabetic, and, and his wife had rescued Pippi when she was two years old. And her blood sugar was bad and etc. But uh, So we're sorry about Pippi, Leonard. But here's another one. And Brian, I need to see what you think about this, because this is from John. Thunder and lightning. Should I be looking for any severe weather alert? They said it wasn't going to be bad. This is not about a, a dead furry friend, Brian. This is about a living furry friend that is, well, I'll, I'll read it to you and see what you think. Okay. John says, I used to hate cats before meeting Gingy. Turned me completely around on him. That was four years ago when my then-girlfriend adopted him as a seven-week-old kitten. Now, Gingy has grown up to be a bit rambunctious, and sinister forces are trying to convince my ex to put Gingy down for being aggressive. I'd like to ask the cult of Cornet to come to Gingy's aid with showings of support. <laughs> Gingy isn't a bad cat. He's just min misunderstood. Don't kill Gingy. So what kind of fucking... That's not much sinister, of a defense. Well, no, what kind of sinister forces are... Say, oh, the cat. It's aggressive. Kill it. He's talking about his ex-girlfriend. He's talking about sinister forces. It's her parents. <laughs> That's the only people... Well, what the fuck? They're scared of a cat? <laughs> what is this cat possessed by a demon going around slitting people's fucking Achilles tendons under the bed at night? Who wants to kill a cat? Fuck. If you have a cat living with you... I'm not even saying kill. I'm saying maybe kick out of the apartment. If you have a cat living with you that is unpleasant, pees and shits wherever, scratches you... Attacks people, coming up with the worst case scenario. Wouldn't you want it out of your apartment? Well, oh, how much? I, is, how long does this commitment have to go? Well, he didn't say anything about an apartment. He could live in a mansion, a giant home with plenty of room for all the wildlife. Well, she doesn't live with him. Well, possibly she could live in a mansion with these sinister parents you're talking about, or her sister, or her but best also, friend. Oh, <laughs> it's it, always the said, same thing. Gingy has grown up to be a bit rambunctious. He didn't say anything about, well, he's pissing and shitting about and scratching people. And It's almost like it's on my side it's so loud. Jesus. Well, hey, that's good. We do things right down here. Thunder over Louisville. So the point I'm making is we shouldn't kill Gingy just for being rambunctious and, and adopt him out. Give him to some... People you don't like, for heaven's sake. All right. Here was, this is from Luke, and this tugged at my heart. Hi, Jim and Brian. My cute little hamster Frankie just passed. 
It was a hard day considering my aunt had passed away earlier in the day. And then I would find Frankie dead in his cage later that night. He was such a cute little guy and was so funny. I would pick him up and he would flail his little legs around and it was the cutest thing ever. He would also sometimes try to escape from his cage by trying to squeeze himself through one of the small openings, but would get his little head stuck, but thankfully would get his head out. He meant so much to me, and I got him when I was in a really dark place, and just having a little friend like him helped me through so much. Apparently including the death of your aunt. <laughs> That, that was parenthetically referenced in the first part of this email and then never brought up again. So here's a picture of my furry little friend, my sweet Frankie. I miss him dearly. My aunt, not so much. She was a bitch. No, I, I added that part. He never referenced his aunt again. So Luke, we're sorry about Frankie and and really ambivalent, I guess, about your aunt. That was the one that pulled at your heartstrings, I believe. That it really did. <laughs> it really did. All right. Well, there's Reggie's corner. We've caught up on some of them, and there's many more folks. And I'm I'm sorry to say because it's always a sad occasion where that that comes up. But uh, uh, do we have an outro for Reggie's corner, or do we just move on? Reggie's Corner We're here to talk about your good boys and girls Reggie's Corner We're so sorry they're dead now Hey, you know what? On on that topic, Matt O'Donnell, you're the one who made the intro. If you want to make an outro, let us know. Uh, There you go, an outro. Something we can play... At the out of the segment rather than the in of the segment, which is an intro. See, they're, they're distinct things. Because it wouldn't make sense otherwise. We, we, we want to be professional here, don't we, Brian? We do. Yeah. In some sense. In some, in some loose <laughs> sense of the word, we want to be professional. All right, I got one more email here. This is obviously not about an animal. Uh, it's about the dynamite television taping in Hamilton, Ontario. The second, the third, I guess, of four appearances they made, or was it five in the Ontario province over the course of about 10 days? It was at least four. Well, they did the, the pay-per-view and a collision and a dynamite and then another, another dynamite didn't, I don't know. Anyway, they can't get out of Canada, much like me in in mirror image. I can't get in, they can't get out. Anyway, Matt wrote, Greetings, Jim and Brian. My name is Matt. Apparently, he must be telling the truth. He said it twice. And I wanted to share some experiences I had when I went to a taping of Dynamite. My friends, uh, three friends and I were in attendance for the most recent Dynamite show in Hamilton, Ontario. I don't know if that narrows it down too much. We showed up early with the hopes of maybe finding some merch, and we were greeted with a merch table selling mostly generic AEW logo shirts, elite shirts, and shirts left over from Forbidden Door. None of us purchased anything. Upon entering the arena, and well, here, before we go any further, why are they, we get constant 
emails that the merge tables, the, the stands, they're not numerous. There's only one open or they only have a limited amount of stuff. The lines are incredibly long to the point where you don't want to stand in it or they're, the prices are ridiculous. Like, a you know, T-shirts for $50 and autographed, I don't know, toilet seats for 500 bucks or whatever it. Yeah, we started hearing this during the house shows, and that's one thing, and even that's inexcusable when you hear they only had one merch table and very little merch, but if it's a television taping, what are they doing? Well, and, and part of it may be crossing a border with a bunch of stuff. They may be trying to fly under some kind of radar on selling goods in a foreign country, but I, we hear it domestically also that, and you would think that they would be all over merchandise because, again, for the people who like that kind of thing, I guess the point I'm trying to make is that these people like to spend money on merchandise. Why wouldn't AEW have the merchandise available when they got the people right there in the building in front of them? You know, and again, WWE just signed that deal with Fanatics. WWE already had a pretty good in-house operation for merch. They wanted to take that off their books and not deal with it. Fanatics is going to deal with it. That's a professional company. You got to think they're going to have a lot of inventory. They're going to be ready for every occasion. Again, it's multiple shows now. It's not just house shows. I don't even know if they're doing house shows ever again. Who's in charge of merchandise in that company anyway? Well, again, they use pro wrestling tees for their shirts, I believe, still. And they have one of the Young Bucks wives was given a gift job working in merch because of her success with the Young Bucks merchandise. <laughs> and. Beyond that, I couldn't tell you. Okay. Well, anyway, Matt continues. Upon entering the arena, there were people checking signs and confiscating anything with CM Punk written on it. One sign slipped by and they held it up during the entrance for the elite and it was confiscated shortly thereafter. Now, now, again, that's, a this is now that's a CM Punk sign after CM Punk came back? I mean, this is Hamilton, yes. And they yes, confiscated yes. it? This was dynamite. Now, one wonders, it's one person's testimony here, but I would like to hear if, if that has been happening on a more regular, widespread, numerous basis, whatever the case, are they really taking punk signs from the dynamite crowd? It's the same company. We have heard feedback from people, not specifically about CM Punk signs, but specifically about heavy-handed tactics to confiscate signs right away. You would think a wrestling company would embrace this. AEW, seemingly unnoticed because no one's talking about it, are going after fan signs. But I, I would, it, it, it just, I want to get a grip on that. If anybody else has had that experience, just not with punk fucks goats uh, obviously they're going to take that sign but just a sign praising or even condemning in a, a non-profane way see has anybody taken these cm punk signs is matt's experience singular or is there some more because that's <laughs> and i be i believe it because you know the wednesday night crew wants to bury the saturday night crew they don't care about tony's money he's got plenty but again, Tony allows it. If Tony allows it, it's Tony's fault. If a fan holds up a sign during a Young Bucks match that says CM Punk owns the Young Bucks, do you think that's an excusable reason for confiscating it or no? No. Hell, think about the Attitude Era or even just wrestling signs in general. Yes, some can cross the line, but my favorite wrestler owns 
my least favorite wrestler. How can that be not permissible in a goddamn wrestling crowd at a wrestling show? Again, we're talking about the fragile click in the locker room. So who knows? Well, anyway, call me anything you want. Just don't call me late for dinner. What are your thoughts in general about confiscating fan signs? Like, when would you as a promoter or as a booker see, I mean, if they're going to spoil a finish, obviously you don't want that just on the air. Yeah. You don't want just pussy. Or something. <laughs> just like, what are your lines? Fuckity McFuck fuck. But when it comes to actually um, talking about the talent being used on the show, what is your line? Well, what's my line? Uh, no, it, it, at one point in it, when we were doing a Smoky Mountain Wrestling television taping, one of the early ones, 1992, I read Joe Petticino had come up from Atlanta. And somebody had made a big sign, and it was kind of elaborate, praising Buddy Landell. And uh, the handheld camera got a shot of it. I said, don't shoot that. And they said, why? I said, he's a heel. The heels don't have fucking signs. Because it was still early enough, you could kind of enforce that. There weren't that many of them. And Petticino was like, what? Well, that shows the fans are engaged. I said, no, that shows the people like Buddy. I don't want them to like Buddy. I want them to not like Buddy. That, to me, was detrimental to business at that point. I mean, that's 30 years ago. Now it's all completely gone to hell, and it wouldn't matter. But unless it's something that it, that can get you either kicked off the air or at least in trouble with the station, profanity, you know, vulgarity of some description that'll get heat with sponsors, or... Again, like you said, something that gives away, you know, a finish or just basically, I would obviously not tolerate something. It was, well, this bullshit's fake and we all know it. But otherwise, if people are going to bring signs, you got to let them bring signs. Else, if you don't let them bring some that there's nothing wrong with, it'll, they'll just not bring any of them. But no, I don't support signs that can get you kicked off television or are so, you know, inside personal life bullshit, stuff that you didn't see in the Attitude Era, mostly because people didn't know about all that shit. Does that answer your question? I guess so. And again, AEW, they're doing these shows with limited merch. And then when fans show up engaged wanting to buy merch and there's no merch and they want to hold up a sign, they take the sign. I don't know what to think about that. That's not what we're led to believe AEW would be like. That's kind of more WWE behavior, isn't it? What what is that phrase? I've you can't buy it, but I can't sell it either. They're just double ribbing themselves. Anyway, you have told me that during my week of peaceful bliss, where I didn't know too much was going, because I had a, a busy week anyway. A variety of work was being done and cleaning up things and etc. But you are going to loop me back in on some of the goofy things that have been going on in the wrestling business over the last week. Well, we could talk about a few things. Let me start with some news. I don't know if we would call it breaking, but Fightful Select is reporting that November 1st, AEW Dynamite will be coming from Louisville, Kentucky, <laughs> and it looks like they are booking the Yum Center. Oh, Jesus. Oh, boy. Okay. The Yum Center, despite its ridiculously childish name is the home arena for the university of louisville cardinals basketball team and is the biggest arena in the city of louisville and seats 
20000 for basketball if you used the whole building. So I wonder what fraction of the building AEW will be. You know, we've got other places that if they had to come here, they could they could get freedom hall only seats well a goddamn almost the same thing but the rent would be less wwe runs the yum center oh yeah oh yeah well they got more money than the federal government but uh a twenty thousand seat building in louisville he's very optimistic is all i got to say Yeah, it says here the event for the an event for the date has been registered and as of now is in the calendar for the kentucky boxing and wrestling commission Yes, you you can't even, we've talked about this before with all the commission rules in Kentucky, even though the commission has undergone changes with the changes in governorship, et cetera, et cetera. You can't even advertise an event until you've got your promoter's license and, you know, registered the date and you can't advertise talent if they don't have wrestling licenses. So that'll be interesting. Will they have the forethought and ability to get everybody a Kentucky license before they advertise them and get fined because the commission loves to take in extra money. You know, we're going to start hearing it from listeners and more than likely based on who's there, you may start hearing it on your answering machine. Any intention on attending? Any intention on attending? Wait, wait, any any attention on intending? Any any intention on attending the AEW show at the Yum Center? Yes, I want your attention right now in that I have no intention of (laughs) intending or attending the goddamn AEW program. That's set in stone? That's that's, committing to that? No, it's not set in stone. It's it's drummed on my paper because I don't have a hammer and chisel in my hand, so I can't set it in stone. But no, I I won't be there. Well, Jim, a hammer and a chisel are things that every now and then may appear, I guess, in a wrestling match. Another thing that recently appeared in a wrestling match were, I don't know what you would call it, skewers? But what led to the image that has now been known as John Moxley Noodlehead. <laughs> Have you seen this? What are your thoughts on this? We talk about this clown every week from Dynamite and the stupid stuff he does, and then he ups the ante in the land of the rising sun. I did see the picture. It was all over Twitter. You couldn't avoid it. I'm surprised people didn't put it up on billboards. And... For those of you lucky enough to have not seen this, and I don't, they are some kind of skewers, but they're the long wooden chopstick looking things, or, you know, I guess you stick them through shrimp. Like kebabs, right? Put them on the Barbie or, you know, a shish kebab or whatever the case may be. And, and some, and I don't know what the context is, and really there can't be any. Just the fact that he did it is enough, but it was in a match in the the glory land of Japan that he fantasizes over when he's, you know, rubbing himself to strong style footage. And he's sitting in the ring and he's covered in blood, obviously. It's it's Plumber Moxley. And there's, what, what would you, were there a dozen, 15 of these things sticking in the top of his fucking head. Apparently, legitimately. How do you, in front of how many hundred people were there, work sticking wooden skewers in your head? And I guess this is a thing that garbage wrestlers have been doing for a while 
in garbage promotions when they have their garbage matches. Among the other thing with the broken glass and the thumbtacks and the fluorescent light tubes and the mouse traps, they also stick wooden skewers in each other's heads and, you know, become a real-life version of Zippy the Pinhead. Dope on a stick. <clears throat> he he certainly was. Um, so what the... F was this in a... In a match, or did he just come out and sit down in the ring like that? Do you know anything more about it? See, I didn't watch it, but apparently there is video. It was during a match, and because I didn't watch it, I'm trying to imagine, was he sitting there and one guy held him down and the other guy carefully stuck these acupuncture style into his head? Yeah, 15 or how does it times. Happen? Yeah, how does it happen? And I mean, it, it doesn't look like something that, unless it protruded all the way through the skull and got a real good grip, it doesn't look like something that would hang in there for a while. So maybe he just, the guy just bopped him in all at the same time, which must have smarted. Because this fucking moron is sitting there letting this fucking guy do that. Because he's a fucking idiot. And I'm telling you, it, it, at this point, somebody needs to have him checked in for an involuntary mental evaluation. Because something's going on. Well, the access to the brain may be a little easier right now because he just cut that opening over. Well, yeah, the he's skewers. got the big hole. <laughs> they don't even need to do a CAT scan. They can just get a fucking magnifying glass and peep right down in there. Hold a mag light up to the hole. You'll see everything he's got. Won't take long. But And somebody tweeted out a picture of, here's Seth Rollins. Looks like a fucking pro athlete even if he's got a silly gimmick he's he's in shape and he's got great gear he's got the hair and he's got a, a a version of the world title in the biggest company in the world and then there's roman reigns and he is the biggest box office attraction in wrestling and looks even more like a fucking greek god athlete and the hair and has the goddamn 18 belts that signify that he's you know, the, the man. And then here's this fucking pale, skinny, fat, balding idiot sitting there in a ring in Japan with fucking shish kebab sticking out of his fucking head. And there are people trying to put him in a conversation with the other two for wrestler of the year. Only if you're running a fucking hibachi grill. I bet he I bet he'd be tasty if you threw him on the Barbie. He's got so much fat on him, that's supposed to make the the thing flavorful, right? Gives the meat its juices. I'm not gonna get into cannibalism here, but you know, we've said it before, the cult of personality is really around John Moxley. People are more into what he's portraying than they are the actual work if they pay attention to it. But you know, it hit me the other day. Because I see some of the reaction to him from AEW's most devoted, the ones who get upset about everything. I've seen the reaction to Moxley from like the softies over on the Observer board. I've seen like the way people do. They treat him the way children treated the Ultimate Warrior in 1989. <laughs> He's like the Ultimate Warrior for the soft because it's all personality. His work is bad. Anyone who tells me John Moxley's doing good work in the ring isn't watching. They're not paying attention. They like watching the warrior shake the ropes. And then, boy, here's the problem. It, for people to like that personality indicates there's something wrong there as well. 
what about this personality is appealing? It's like hearing Darth Vader's voice coming out of fucking Pee Wee Herman's face. It just doesn't fit. Anyway. Well, we have some more stories for you, Jim. And we have a little Well, bit- tell me a story. We have more about Moxley, but let's take a Moxley break here. And I do want to mention there is an interview that countless amount of people have sent us that Dave Meltzer just did with Chris Van Vliet. And let me make sure I say that name right because we've talked about him. We talked about him before. I've never said his name right because I've never actually checked out his stuff, but I watched this interview because enough people said we had to. And it is astounding some of his comments about. The matches he rates and how he rates them and why he rates them and what it's supposed to mean. But it's going to take a while. So that will be on drive-thru 300. We got, we got to muddle through the you-knows and the uh, him and haws and, uh, well, uh... Well, there's going to be a lot of things to go through there, but that'll be on drive-thru 300 later this week. So stay tuned for that in your podcast feeds and, of course, on YouTube. But, Jim, another story that a lot of people are talking about, Jerry McDivitt. Longtime WWE attorney, Vince McMahon's personal attorney, I believe. Yes. Has announced he is retiring at the end of the year. This came up when he recused himself from the MLW WWE lawsuit because he said that it will clearly go past the new year and he is retiring. What are your thoughts on this? Did you see the schedule? They printed the schedule that the court schedulers or whoever schedules lawsuits. We need to get Stephen P. New in on this. Um. They've got a schedule for, for this to happen and that to happen and this side to prevent or to prevent to present this evidence or the discovery or whatever that takes it into 2025. And we're in the summer of 2023. And Jerry McDivitt is 74 years old. And remember, he made a comment. Was it when Vince had gone away last year for a little while and been asked to leave and never return until he came back. And Jerry was like, well, maybe finally I can retire or something like that. He made a comment because the he knows Vince is never going to retire. And I would think that this attorney who has been extremely successful over a period of 40 years or more, whatever, I don't think he needs a job. He probably has some type of family that he'd like to spend some time with, or maybe just go home and put his feet up. And he's the attorney and friend of this guy who will never quit until he dies. So at this point, I think he saw that schedule and said, what the fuck? I can no, I'm not doing this for two more years. I'm not doing it for the rest of my fucking life. Let me just Check, please, and I'll go right now, and and Vince can get other people, and they can get in on this right now and take it from here. I have a few quotes here. He spoke to Brandon Thurston from WrestleNomics, who broke the story. As you may know, since early 2022, I've been working towards retirement. I had hoped that the court would again dismiss MLW's lawsuit, as it did the first time. When it did not and it became obvious that the case would run into at least 2025, in all probability, I advised my client that I would be wrapping things up by year-end, and that it would make sense for them to secure counsel who can go the distance on the case now that discovery will be starting. There is also the chance that I might be a witness, given the allegations. I'll be 74 this January, 
and it just seems like the right time to make the necessary transitions. We have worked with Paul Weiss on other matters, and they are an excellent firm who I will be helping get up to speed. It has been a great 36-year run with a great company, and Vince, and I am very <laughs> proud of all that we accomplished poor, during that poor time. people and Vince. And I will continue to help them in any way I can. Um, yes. And again, Vince is going to have to realize that not everybody is going to want to goddamn work until they fucking die, especially in, in service of his whims. Is Vince yeah. going to stop calling just because this guy announced he's going to retire? I'm sure they'll still talk. And I would, I would be more than certain that Jerry McDivitt would give him personal advice or just tell him what he thinks, but he doesn't want to be out there doing the fucking, the trials and the briefs and the cross-examinations and the depositions and the blah, blah, blah. And I don't blame him. And why the fuck is anybody 75 years old lucky enough to be that age still worried about and, and has enough money to support themselves in the manner in which they've been accustomed? Why are they going to be fucking with any of that shit to begin with? It's insane. So yeah, so Jerry has escaped the uh, the the Titan. That's Vince's ship, the Titan, and nobody is allowed to leave unless he says, and then he'll throw you overboard. It's not going to be Vince's ship much longer once that merger goes into play. But let's get well. Out. But if he's still got his hand on the wheel, the real fucking captain might be over in the goddamn galley having a ham sandwich. But who's steering the thing? He's got his hand on the paralegal. This well, Vince see, we're talking about. He's going to have all the ends with the legals. He's got a pair of them now. Jim, another topic, another story that a lot of people have been sending us naturally. Sports Illustrated, SI.com, another one of their puff pieces by Justin Barrasso. John Moxley has a whole dissertation <laughs> on why blood belongs in pro wrestling. He doesn't always intend to bleed in his matches but he finds that getting busted open often goes hand-in-hand hand with the sort of performance he strives for. <laughs> uh, I'm gonna, I don't want to go through the whole art. Well, I always say these are puff pieces. Let's see if it is or it isn't. It's half past one in the morning on Thursday. Air conditioning serves as a reprieve from the sweltering heat in Tokyo, which had felt like a sauna the previous two days at Karakin Hall. Full of adrenaline, from back-to-back -back physically grinding matches full of blood, bruises, and foreign objects, John Moxley has no intention of going to sleep. <laughs> so he agrees to take a phone call. Sitting on his hotel room couch, the shirtless purveyor of violence notices a puddle of blood beside wait, him. Wait a minute, the, the shirtless purveyor of so basically he's lost his shirt in the wrestling business. So he's doing a video interview with Justin Barrasso and he's not wearing a shirt, so we had to make sure we know that he's shirtless, but he notices a puddle of blood beside him. You know what Justin Barrasso said? He, he said, hey, put your shirt on, Tarzan, just because your breath smells like cheetahs and no sign that you're Tarzan. Or he may have gone the other way and said, hey, you want me to take mine off too? Would that make you more comfortable? Well, that might be. Uh, it just depends on whether he was Jake from State Farm, but go ahead. Well, back to the puddle of blood. I just realized that. It's not the first piece of furniture I ruined. They'll charge me for the cleaning. <sighs> Some love Moxley's bold, unapologetic style. Others don't. 
but he is pioneering. Some believe he should be forced to apologize for his style. But he is pioneering a different style, one covered in blood. <laughs> I'm sorry. It's almost like I said, AI, make me a Sean Moxley story. <laughs> oh, hold on. Uh, that was visibly apparent this week when Moxley celebrated the 4th of July at Carrickin Hall. He teamed with Homicide against June Kasai and El Desperado in a gnarly doomsday no disqualification match. Wait a minute. Was that a title of the match or just his description, gnarly? Is that a, a, a match they have over there, a gnarly doomsday match? No, I think it was just doomsday. He called it gnarly, although now that you say it, it actually does sound like a cool, the gnarly doomsday match. It's badass. And the chemistry with Desperado was quite evident. Who is who is June? What's her name now? June? Well, who? His June name, Cleaver? Uh, June Kasai is the name here. Well, wait, uh, I thought June was a girl's name. No, in Japan, that's a man's name. June Akiyama? So June Cleaver would have been the man, and then I guess Ward's a woman's name? Well, let me go to some quotes here. Uh, Desperado is a free spirit in the way he works and presents himself. Says Moxley, who wrestled Desperado for the first time last July at New Japan Pro Wrestling's Music City Mayhem Show. <sighs> when you watch his matches in Mexico, he has a proclivity to think freely. I don't want to label him a deathmatch guy, but when you're in a room with him, you know it. <laughs> we, sh we share an unspoken... because he's got incredible body odor. We share an unspoken bond. We didn't have a... <laughs> we didn't have a ton of expectations for our first encounter last year, but it showed us what we're capable of doing together. Uh, let me go past the fluff here. Uh, oh, here we go. The tag bout ended with Moxley covered in his own blood foreshadowing his death match against Desperado the next day. But unlike the tag, a defeat, Moxley was victorious in the singles bout and naturally covered in his own blood. I have a whole dissertation on my theory about blood in modern wrestling. Ugh. Do we have time for that? A resounding affirmative was the response to that inquiry. <laughs> Moxley then proceeded to offer his reasoning on why blood belongs in pro wrestling. Oh, this ought to be good. Considering there is always logic embedded in Moxley's storytelling. What? It is no surprise that a hallmark of it's, his philosophy... Wait a minute, wait a minute. What, where's the logical e explanation for stabbing a son of a bitch in the head four times with a screwdriver and not beating him? It is no surprise that a hallmark of his philosophy is sound reasoning. This is a combat sport. College wrestling is a combat sport, too. They have blood timeouts to patch it up. The lowest prelim bout of a UFC card or a boxing card. Somebody might have a little blood on their eyebrow or blood coming out of their nose. <laughs> but they're not selling a blood sport. It's true. Tune in for the blood. Tune in for the gore. It's part of the aesthetic. It adds realism. A much shorter answer, Moxley explained, is that he has so much scar tissue on his eyebrows and head <laughs> that he cuts very easily. Yeah. Sometimes when I don't even want to. But I only know one speed. That's with my foot on the gas pedal. If we're gonna <laughs> do something, let's fucking do it. That could be detrimental when it comes to negative things, like drugs or alcohol. <laughs> but that's my mindset. If I'm doing it, I'm doing it. When it comes to blood, it's just going to happen sometimes. 
Like I said, it's foot on the gas pedal. <laughs> Some people say, this is just a random match. Why is there blood? I heard that last week versus Tomohiro Ishii. <laughs> He's one of the greatest of all time. I'm not going to let that moment slip by. I'm going foot to the fucking gas pedal. How can I not? Then I hear that I can't have a good match without blood. Okay. Then you made my argument for me. I'll do it every time. Has he been huffing the gas as he's putting the foot to the gas pedal? You said I can't have a good match without blood. Okay, so I'll bleed every time. I'll bleed every time. <laughs> that is brilliantly stupid, but it's fucking hysterical. It's it's well in his own weird way. Of, and let me ask you this, Brian: When they have the UFC blood timeouts or the college wrestling blood timeouts or whatever, have we gotten a good on-camera shot of one of the competitors cutting their own heads with a razor blade right before we go into that? No. To keep the credibility of the sport up. No, there's usually not a close-up of that. Usually one of the fighters doesn't get on the mic. Well, I shouldn't say that. They yell fuck. <laughs> yeah, they, <laughs> like do, the they do yell fighters. fuck. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, but there's no blading or screwdrivers in the UFC. And and basically, so by keeping the credibility of the business up, he's talking about not selling anything to make it all look phony, doing blatantly preposterous and nonsensical things with furniture and implements to make it all look phony. And as long as I and or some of the people that I'm working with slice ourselves open to bleed for real, even though everything we do looks like phony fucking shit, then it will add to the credibility of the wrestling industry. Is that what he's saying here? I guess, and we'll go back to it because the big quotes are coming up, but what are your thoughts in general? We've talked in the past a little bit about it, that this is the kind of stuff SI is putting on their website. Well, yeah, I mean, the the literary fellatio has become boundless as far as the not only the seductive and blatantly erotic descriptions of the shirtless Moxley, who had a pencil-thin mustache and was wearing Speedos, but also just the, what the ridiculous amount of praise of this shit that you would expect coming from a, a fanzine-level writer, and there's it's people writing for what used to be Sports Illustrated, and that's, just, that's embarrassing. But do you think that's a problem? I mean, with anything, with anything, yeah. with anybody, with people we like. You know, Time and Newsweek shouldn't be saying, and CM Punk is the savior of wrestling and the best talent that's ever existed, and many people throw hotel keys at him whenever he walks down the aisle. That's the problem. Like, you want serious wrestling writing, and then the people who get the gigs want to do fan club stuff. And maybe it's a double-edged sword where you can't get access to the wrestlers you want to talk to for these things unless you're going to blow them. No, that sounds like a little over and above. I because I mean John Moxley doesn't even know all those words, much less to tell somebody to write that about him. Well, let's go back to this. Moxley's thesis is that blood will be shed. He backs it up with solid arguments and a willingness to question whether WWE's approach to blood is the correct method. The point of the dissertation is that this is a combat sport. But we're not allowed to have blood in a match unless it's a personal grudge. We're only allowed to have blood after a five-month grudge, after somebody slept with somebody's wife, or somebody ran over someone with a car. And then, only then, 
We're allowed to have this dramatic crimson mask that looks the exact same every time. For me, realism-wise, since this is a combat sport, that means that there is the potential for blood in every match. He is he's hung up that he's a tough guy. He has convinced himself. And apparently a few other people, not many, but he is wholly on board with the delusion that he's this badass tough guy. And no, you stupid son of a bitch. You're not going to have blood every time out because most guys in the wrestling business, instead of just slicing themselves open in any random match, would rather save it for when it will make them some money and mean something at the gate. But you do you. Everything in wrestling is preposterous to some degree, but this helps with the suspension of disbelief. I'm actually for less blood, but more often. If every (laughs) single match on the card had a busted eyebrow or bloody nose, it would be just part of the sport. (laughs) But some gory spectacle with blood shooting like a hose is pretty unnecessary. We're elbowing each other in the face every single match. We're kicking each other in the face every single match. What are these people made of if they're not bleeding? People ask why there is blood in the ring every time I leave it. It feels unnatural to go out of my way to make sure no one is bleeding. That feels like, I got, that feels like I'm taking my foot off the gas pedal. Oh, the gas is back. That doesn't interest me. What's up with the gas pedal? That's four references to this already. I, I guess he was speeding on his way to the interview. In more ways than one, it sounds like. So what do you think about the idea there should be blood in every match to some oh degree? A little bit here, a little bit there, sprinkled over here. And a soup's on there. <laughs> Again, there are ways that you can make or would want to make works simulate shoots, and there's ways that you don't. And it can be anything from the fact that, remember the the first UFC special on Fox back in like, I think it was 2009. They built up the big main event. It was Dos Santos and goddamn, who was it? I think, nevertheless, they built this big fucking main event up like the goddamn cataclysmic confrontation between the Christians and the Lions, and it was over in less than a minute. And that's the problem with shoots. You sometimes don't give the people their money's worth. And in other times or other cases of how you don't necessarily want your working to look like a shoot, if everybody bleeds in some description, or even most of the people bleed in any description on a wrestling show, then again, like all the dives that are now not only commonplace but boring, or all the other shit you can't get away from, People just become numb to it, and they overlook it. It becomes part of the sport, like numb nuts there said. And then you can't use it to draw any money anymore, because it's normal. Everybody expects it, and they even don't. They don't even pay any attention to it. But this fucking lunatic, yeah, can't get that. Well, let me finish up. I'll skip to the bottom. Only 37. Moxley is and and by the end looks like that. Moxley is old enough to know that careers do not last forever. 
That makes him even more grateful to soak up moments like this. And for the work he is doing with the Blackpool Combat Club, which is building to a blood and guts match against the Elite in two weeks on Dynamite. At some point, some match will be my last. This existence in my athletic career is finite. I feel like I didn't use a few of my peak years to my full potential, a lot of which is no fault of my own. Some of it is, so I'm very in the moment. I want to wring the sponge of every ounce of potential. I want to find out exactly what I could become. Join the army. Regret is one of the worst <laughs> things in life. Yeah, motherfucker, do more before breakfast than most people do all day. Regret is one of the worst things in life. There's some really good quote about it. Regret lasts forever or some shit. You know what I'm saying? No, I want a career no, without regret. Don't. <laughs> we haven't heard the quote. We'd like you to tell us the quote now that you teased us with the quote. As the time extended well beyond two in the morning, this American-based reporter apologized for taking up so much of Moxley's night. Nonchalantly, and in trademark fashion, Moxley offered a logical response before attempting to get some sleep. I don't go out after shows anymore, so I end up bored as fuck. It worked out perfectly. And that's the end of the uh, article here. Well, at least he ends up after his matches like everybody else that's watched him ends up. That's why he's so obsessed with Stallone. He goes back to the hotel. What's on TV? Just all these various Stallone movies. Rocky three. Rocky three. Uh, Jim. Yes. The only other outstanding stuff to talk about really would be the ratings. And I don't know when you would want to do that or what you would want to do that. Well, since we're going to talk about... AEW from this past Wednesday night, why don't we jump into what were the ratings, and we know they were sad, but to tell the listeners, for the 4th of July weekend collision, for all us colliders out there, the third episode of Collision, July the 1st, that was the Saturday night of 4th of July weekend, did not, did not do well. Same day as Money in the Bank, start of the holiday weekend, Saturday night may have been all right for fighting, but it was not all right for watching people fight. What happened? Jim, last week's episode of AEW Collision, July 1st, Saturday night, on TNT, was watched on average by 452,000 viewers. Ouch! And that, by any measure of the equation, sucks swamp water. But... Again, <laughs> I ask, did they did it start out big and they just tune out or nobody tuned in at the start, but they kept the people that they got to begin with? Well, let's go to the numbers here. The show opened 8 to 8, 15 p.m. with MJF versus Kip Morse, which led into MJF versus Ethan Page. 473,000 viewers. Okay, and... I guess that's a place to start, but uh, again, the, I'm going to say this at the start, and I've mentioned this before, that you can't hot shot every week of television because if you do, it ends up like shit stain did with the attitude area. You never recover, and they can't hot shot big happenings, major announcements, thanks guys, whatever. They need to, and I've said this with Dynamite, they need to sacrifice 
some element of a, a number, or they should have at the start, to introduce everybody to what they were fucking doing and make you familiarize you with the players and establish a baseline and try to hold that audience and then build on it. Instead of just advertising somebody's going to get drawn and quartered and thrown to the lions and you'll get 920,000 people for that quarter, but we don't know who the people were. We didn't care about them. We just wanted to see them cut in fucking four pieces. So what they, they appear to be on collision. I just want to say they appear to be on collision doing a wrestling show, establishing a baseline and giving us a good main event while trying to establish the roster that they want to get over. And that's not going to be something you can hot shot, but if they can keep the audience they get and then build on it, that's the traditional way of debuting and building a wrestling program on television, not the modern way. Go ahead. And again, it's important to note here, David Zaslov reportedly wanted this show. He requested this show from AEW. He thought it would do better numbers than the programming they had in that time slot on TNT previously. So far, it hasn't, other than week one. With that said, AEW probably didn't need another two hours of TV. Oh, God, no. So they needed to make the two hours they have on Wednesday night as good as the two hours is on Saturday night that fewer people are watching and not nonsense and parody. Yeah, so I mean, it'll be interesting what the baseline is, but again, it's a new night. It's Saturday. It's not Wednesday. It's certainly not Friday either, and that's not a winning combination at Rampage show. But we don't know what the baseline is, but let's go back to And again, last week, they also, week one, they establish a tone. Week two, they start with Jericho. So right yeah. away, you send a message there. But nevertheless, my prediction, and then we'll go through the specific numbers and be done with that, but my prediction is this was probably their bottom number because of the holiday weekend, Money in the Bank having just been over with, et cetera, et cetera, and not to particularly an appealing, strong main event. And it will, by next week, be back up more around where week two was, but not reach where week one was. So we have, week one's going to be the high, and week three, I believe, is the low. And again, it has to feel different than Dynamite. But let's go uh, segment two, continuation of MJF versus Ethan Page, as well as Dustin Rhodes versus Powerhouse Hobbs, 444 thousand viewers well there you go uh, by the way these were compiled by wrestlenomics segment 3 8 30 to 8 45 p.m continuation of dustin versus powerhouse picture in picture samoa joe and roderick strong promos backstage and miro versus anthony henry 451 thousand viewers so again they they dropped almost 30 from one to two but then have picked up seven from two to three this program again seems to be more consistent quarter four 8 45 to 9 p.m cm punk ricky starks and ftr promos as well as the bullet club gold in ring promo four hundred and sixty-three thousand viewers okay they're they're still picking them up but then this at the same time was we talked about the program last week this was that long bullet club promo and then starks and juice and killed the crowd and us all at the same time and that's where we're at nine o'clock hour quarter five nine to nine fifteen p.m juice robinson versus ricky starks with picture in picture 
486,000 viewers. Good Lord. So they picked up 23,000 in the segment that everybody said was death, and they're ahead at 9 o'clock where they were at 8 o'clock. Okay. Segment 6, 9.15 to 9.30 p.m., the finish of Ricky Starks versus Juice Robinson, the Christian Cage confrontation with Sean Spears, Chris Statlander versus Lady Frost with Picture in Picture, 452,000 viewers. Okay, well, now they're suffering for the ills of that 30 minutes of the Bullet Club. Segment 7, 9.30 to 9.45 p.m., the finish of Statlander versus Frost, the Andrade El Idolo promo where the House of Black showed up on a screen, and the beginning of Roderick Strong versus Samoa Joe, 420,000 viewers. Ooh, all righty. They hit that rough patch, and now they're, they're down 53,000 from the start of the program, and they're down 66,000 from the height of the program at the 9 o'clock hour. And finally, segment 8, 9.45 to 10 p.m., Roderick Strong versus Samoa Joe with picture-in-picture. Picture Good match, not exactly marquee level. And CM Punk on commentary with the post-match angle with Roderick, Roderick, Roderick Strong getting stretchered out. 430,000 viewers. So they got back 10,000. So... They lost 43,000 from start to finish, which again, is less than 10% of the audience instead of the 25% that Dynamite loses. So we're, we're figuring out that less people are watching the program, but they're more invested in it. There's less fluctuation. And in, amazingly, in some cases, uh, completely antithetical to AEW's normal pattern, some quarters actually go up in the middle of the show. And I think the good commentary helps hold people. But also, let's note, because we have before the key demo, because that's what the network's looking for. They began at 169,000 viewers. They peaked 9 o'clock hour, 183,000 viewers. And they ended with 173,000 viewers. So fairly consistent there, too. But we shall see. I, again, I'm predicting that, that that's the worst collision we'll do. Fourth of July holiday weekend. The debut show was the best it's going to do for quite a while. And the true nature of, of what we're going to be seeing out of it is going to be somewhere in between. We shall see. The booking of the show will be important. But that is the collision ratings from last week. Well, collision went in the septic tank on Saturday. So I was thinking as we sat down to watch AEW the day after Fourth of July, Wednesday, that they need a ball buster show here to maintain some kind of momentum or credibility. Uh, you know, with the WWE, every every event now that the WWE runs, they're sending out press releases saying this is the highest grossing event ever happened in the history of the world. And over on the other side, AEW is putting out press releases that they've got a streaming deal in Bolivia and Christchurch, New Zealand. So <laughs> they need something here. And I'm thinking, well, maybe they'll have a good show on Wednesday. And boy, was I wrong. What in the world was the, the point of the, they didn't even, they didn't even do the dream match thing. It was like they were trying to do a wrestling show with angles and storyline, but just almost nobody knew how. 
Yeah, that's a pretty good summation of AEW Dynamite from the fifth. Okay, it starts out that in the back, they don't jump right into the ring. They go to the back with Rene Moxley Good, with Darby Allen and Keith Lee. And Darby recites his verbiage that he had to impart to Keith Lee like he was completely somed out of, off his ass, which was 180 degrees from what he did with, later on in the program. We'll talk about the segment he's talking about something he wanted to talk about. But here he just gets the the words out and bows up to Keith Lee, basically says, I know you don't want a team with Swerve. So pull your head out of your ass and either win this two-on-one without swerve or just stand on the apron and cry about it. So this little pipsqueak tells off this giant and then walks off and Keith Lee laughs about it. Now he's ballsy but stupid. So, well, before I get to, let me tell you the rest of the match. <laughs> well, as can, we, soon can, as, we, can we talk about this promo for a second, though? Okay, yeah, go ahead. You know, the problem is since the MJF feud, Darby's become like a guidance counselor in these promos. Yes. Everyone he addresses, he's like, here's how you can fix yourself. Here's what you should do from him. And by the way, I'm going to go crash my car into my house. <laughs> you know, I, I'd really be impressed if he crashed his house into his car. What do you think of Keith Lee dyeing his hair back and shaving and looking, I guess, similar to the way he looked facially a couple of years ago? Well, I think somebody told him, what the fuck are you doing? You look like Father Time. And your work does not shine a, a, such a bright light that it would distract from the fact that you look like you were ready to be laid out and have words spoken over you. So he's tried to youthful himself up a little bit again, I guess. But again, it, it's the blind draw tag team tournament. And remind me if I'm telling, tell me if I tell a lie, Brian, but Swerve and Keith Lee were partners for about three weeks, right? Maybe a month. Well, no, it was a little bit longer than that because it was a few months because they had the tag team titles. Okay, but it was very short. And then they, they did an angle where they broke up. And then they even showed some footage. Swerve did an angle where he hurt Keith Lee with a cinder block in December. And then I'm not aware that they ever had a match between each other. And now they're partners in the blind draw tag team tournament, but they don't want to be. And this angle, if you can call it that, is still going on between them. Have I summarized that appropriately? Somewhat. I don't remember, like you, I don't remember if they ever had a singles match. They've had a couple interactions since. Rick Ross hasn't been seen since. That guy Trench... Well, apparently that was his name, the guy with all the tattoos all over the place. He got fired, didn't he? They just let him go. Yeah. So I don't know what happened there. His attorney must be happy about all that. And then Parker Budrow or Boudreaux, whatever his name is, he's still around, but he's not associated with any of this anymore. So they rushed the tag team breakup to do something that they weren't going to follow up on. It was a waste, then, of, it was a waste of the tag team run. At least then it, they were consistent because they didn't follow up on it. So they did what they intended to do. I guess. But this match, as soon as you come out of the pre-tape, there comes Pockets. He's making his entrance. And I wrote, fucking hell, every week. No wonder they lose 25% of the audience from start to finish. And the tournament match is Darby and Pockets against Swerve and Keith Lee. And... 
when Swerve comes out with the entire Prince Nana, Cage, Khan and Leone, and then Keith Lee comes out and just walks past with a smug smirk on his face, the guy who broke a cinder block over him six months ago. Uh, so, again, pockets rule. Even if this was some kind of brilliant angle, you can't take it seriously. He's in it. And I'm sorry, but if anybody doesn't want to hear this, I apologize. But some of these guys in AEW are complete idiots and don't mind doing tricks with the trained chimp. But some of these guys, I'm sorry it's factual. No, and they're embarrassed to go along with this or outright don't want to be involved in it. They just can't say it out loud in public because the owner of the company is mentally a maladjusted 14-year-old, and he thinks he's found a friend. You're speaking about Orange Cassidy as the trained monkey. Correct. He's the cheetah segment in the Tarzan movie. Comedy relief. Part of the problem, I mean, what you just said is right, but it's beyond that. The attempt to convince everyone that this is right has started to work. You're starting (laughs) to hear, you know, he really is, you know, good in the ring. He's wrestling the same way he did from the beginning. Same stupid stuff from the beginning, but Tony is on a mission to convert people into believing in this guy right before he gives him the title. 20 minutes before that was over with. 20 minutes of this television program for this nonsense. Then they moved on. What are your thoughts on the Battle Bowl concept in general? (laughs) If... It's not a bad concept in general, but again, when they have nothing but tournaments, when their tag teams have all been disrupted just to make six-man teams so that the elite could play, and then that's kind of, I don't know where the fuck they're even at with that, and you've got no strong tag teams except for you've got the best tag team in the business and others, and everybody's got a fucking title of some description they're holding a belt so then you have another tournament to put makeshift teams together to confuse the issue and give some makeshift team a tag team title shot to do an angle when your tag team division is not over in the least at this point what the fuck is going on here yeah how about instead of a blind tag team eliminator tournament tag team title matches when was the last time FTR had a tag team title defense? I don't know. We've seen him in a couple six-man or eight-man matches with CM Punk and Starks. And, the... and we're happy to see those because at least they were good. But, but they're the tag champions. For the tag team title. Yeah. Instead of a tournament with makeshift teams, let's get title defenses. Anyway, um, they, went, they, they did a, a video at Buddy Wayne's house and wrestling school over in Washington State. And not the Buddy Wayne from Memphis, Tennessee, but the Buddy Wayne that was a wrestler and then trained guys out in Washington. And his son, Nick, has just turned 18. AEW signed him at Darby Allen's behest, what, a year and a half, two years ago or whatever, but he couldn't start till he turned 18. And I've heard he's great. I haven't seen it, seen anything of him, but I've heard that he was a prodigy. The footage that they showed, he's doing flips. Is he a 
is he a great worker and they just picked those highlights or is he a guy that everybody says he's a great worker because he does flips, but he's not a great worker. Do you have any idea? I can't add too much of the conversation because I have not watched. I've seen a couple of highlight clips, but I've not watched too much of his footage already from the independence. But in general, not speaking about him, that is what you see a lot of. People say, oh, he's great. He's a great worker. And it's all about either how he flips or how he deals with someone else flipping. It's never about like an MJF working a match like that. That's what I'm afraid of. So we will see. I'm not going to trash the guy before we've seen him, but the highlights didn't do him any favors because he's 18 years old and he looks like he's doing all the same stuff all the other kids do which he'll fit right in here, but that's the problem. You don't want to fit into a group if you want to be a star. You want to stand out. Well, somebody that we pretty well are convinced doesn't know what they're doing right now was next up, a Jungle Boy. Okay, he his limo SUV pulls up, he gets out, he cuts a brief promo saying that he wants an FTW title match. Here comes Hook, jumps him. They get in a brief fight. Jungle Boy jumps back in the limousine, and it pulls out. And we never see him again, and that whole thing didn't last 45 seconds. So Was that we're not bringing you guys back to Canada next week? Hang out well, at home? I, I'm, I'm thinking I hope Jungle Boy wasn't booked for a match because he left and never came back. But that was that. There's potential with the Jungle Boy thing. When that car door opened, if Anna Jay's legs were the first things to come out of that car. Yeah. And then there he is with the sunglasses. Stop taking off the sunglasses. Keep them on and just act like a dick. Yeah. It'll work perfectly. It, and it's, it's like method acting, right? It's like. But just when Hook all of a sudden just runs out of nowhere, out of nowhere, <laughs> where was Hook? And he chases him and he jumps back in the car. They've done it twice now. He can't jump into the car like that again. I think next time he needs to go feet first. How? Just jump up and fucking go through well, the window feet first. Oh my God, listen. I don't know what you do, because you can't have a vine backstage or something, but he's Jungle Boy. Have something where he can run from hook and swing into the car. Yes, yes. Feet first. <sighs> anyway, speaking of feet first, they're jumping into this thing with both feet with MJF and Adam Cole. And they had the history package of their various in-ring, you know, business, but then because they're partners now in the blind draw tag team tournament, they're having a bro day. Remember MJF? And here's the thing. MJF is so quick and so witty and so good at delivering anything verbally and the mannerisms and the inflections and the, the performance of the thing. He can make anything more fun to watch than most everything else on his program. But I don't, it's a kind of a showcase for him unless Adam Cole is finally going to fucking buy into this and switch heel and be his Tully Blanchard to his Ric Flair or whatever. This is entertaining, but I'm not sure that it's doing comedy with your world champion and an alleged potential top challenger. What do you think, Brian? I think a few things. I think clearly these two guys are having fun with this. And whatever that means, that means these guys are having fun with it. They may not have had as much fun with their previous things. I don't know. Adam Cole's working with Jericho. That couldn't have been a lot of fun. 
But you're right. If they lean into this with Adam Cole accepting MJF's way of life, turning on Roddy, we've never had that, have we? Adam Cole super kicking Roddy. I don't think so. And it looks like they're teasing some dissension there because Roddy doesn't trust MJF and obviously vice versa. And they're they're making teases that, you know, like Adam's telling Roddy, okay, I got to go. My match is up, whatever. If they embraced it and went with it, it could be the best thing for Cole. Because I do think, even though it's a little too comedy-ish for me, he plays well off MJF. And like you said, if they eviled it up a little bit, it's not going to be like Tully, I don't think. But they need something with Adam Cole. And again, it's been comedic. But the stuff with him, 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 Jeff. Him, JF? Him and him, JF. The stuff with him and MJF has been, I mean, at least they're working well off each other. Where they go with it, I just, it should be Adam Cole turning heel. It should be Adam Cole just embracing and just being a complete dick. I'll, I'll, I'll vouch for that. Anyway, so what do, that's what, do what they're doing. What do you think of MJF and Cole? Again, they do work well together. It's just, it's not just that it's funny. It's that I'm sorry, they crossed the line into I'm not believing this. One or the other of these people would not do this or say this. It's not, I don't mind something like this being funny if it, if it comes off as they're, it's the funny is a byproduct of what they're doing rather than they're trying on purpose to be funny. If that's not too subtle a distinction. I agree with that. All righty. Well, speaking of trying to be funny, Six-man tag, the acclaimed and Billy Gunn against the Baker and the Bollywood boys. So now the poor acclaimed, they got over. He's got no idea what to fucking do. He botched it. The people still like him, but they got nothing going on to do. So now they just send him out to rap and scissor and have a short match in between. They went two minutes to the break and they came back for a minute and they won, and then they scissored. And as they scissored... Yeah, see, I'm not going to complain about the match because of what came next. Well, yeah, but that, that's the thing is, it's just, it's... <laughs> QTV girl pops up on the screen. Is that a fake accent? Because it goes in and out. One minute she sounds like she's from New Jersey, and the second she sounds like she's the Queen's fucking speechwriter. I think someone told me she's Australian, but I don't know. I don't, she's losing it. How long has she been over here? She's not talking like she's down under anymore. She apparently hadn't been going down or been under <laughs> lately because she's losing her accent. <laughs> and she's going to show her music video <laughs> next week. And I'm thinking, oh, joy. <laughs> you know what? Who thinks this is good in any way? And then Billy Gunn tells her to suck it, and they leave. Why Why do we want to see this non-talented girl that I I think her name is Harley? No, was it? I think as she said her name was Harley, I'm going to sue her for gimmick infringement on behalf of my beautiful Harley Quinn. Uh, but uh, I, I don't know. Comments? I don't know. Again, she has the uh, first strike against her being a part of QT stable. Everything with QT is just the same thing from the beginning of AEW, and the fans treat it the same way. 
she's overly hokey. And the idea that this is all over her wanting to play her music video. This is right off WWE TV, including the suck it ending. And then Billy Gunn does something from 25 years ago to end the segment. They got to do something with the acclaim. That's why I won't complain about the match. Give them tag title wins or six man wins because we need six man matches on every show. But this stuff doesn't help them. Well, speaking of not helping, nobody is helping Plumber Moxley and Eddie Kingston try to settle their issues. They're, they're falling out. They're, they're not seeing eye to eye. And Moxley was doing a promo with B-roll of highlights about how he wants Kingston to forget the past and embrace the future and answer his phone. Maybe Kingston's having the same problem with AT&T that I am. You just can't get to it. Another one of these promos where I want you to be all that you can be. I want you to be <laughs> everything. that I want your potential to be reached. Stop with that shit. That's why I'm going to stab you in the head with a screwdriver. Matt Hardy has drawn Jeff Jarrett as his partner in the blind draw tag team tournament. And then here came Chris Jericho. And have, Brian, have you ever seen a more popular heel? I mean, they're chanting his name, they're singing his song, he's kissing babies. Amazingly popular heel. One of the more popular heels in the history of wrestling. Just wait until he gets to the hotel. And then, and then boom, it goes right through the roof. <laughs> and he's been losing lately. He said, maybe I need to reevaluate myself. He did the most babyface promo I've ever heard. He's in Alberta. He started his career here with Stu Hart, and the fans started chanting Stu, Stu, and, and Jericho thought they were booing Stu. But he babyfaced all of Alberta. He mentioned every town in the province. Wrestling is everything to me. Alberta, you have reinvigorated me. I thought he was running for fucking Canadian prime minister. And then the music interrupted and here came Don Fallis and Don's music. The music <laughs> is now just, what is that? Just a droning guitar chord endlessly looped. Yeah, kind of. Let me see if I can mimic it. Nope. Oh, there it is. No, I can't. I can't. Actually, I believe you could put that out and make a hit out of it compared to, but All right. whatever it was they were playing for Don Fallis, it bothered Harley Quinn. It was incredibly ominous. It, it was. And burdensome. So the fans try to boo Don out of the building again, like that they've been doing, and he's trying to scream to get the story over, but Don's Deal was that he called Jericho six years ago to offer the match against Twinkle Toes in the Tokyo Dome that started all this. And then Jericho took credit for helping get Don back in wrestling before that so that he could make that phone call. And if it wasn't for Jericho, Don wouldn't be here. And so basically just two pricks trying to one-up each other. But then Don pitches to Jericho that he's building a new family. So now, it, and I saw an interview, I guess, that he did or a statement he made somewhere or whatever that, well, it's not like the Heenan family because I've been saying Kenny's like my family and now I'm building a new family to replace the family I lost. They want to be the Bobby Heenan family. 
So the Don Fallis family. They were comparing themselves to Bockwinkle and Heenan, him and Omega, a long while back. Well, I don't know. Were they comparing themselves or did they have Uncle Dave do it for them? I think they said that was the inspiration for them, whatever they were doing on AEW TV. Okay, I think, and then Dave picked up on it. And anyway. So, Jericho, you want to be my best friend of 34 years. You want to be a part of my family. Don does a good promo. He does a good job when he's on his own, although he can get a little silly like this whole crew. But the problem was he was so forever linked with Harpo and his foolish friends that it just became bleh. But he could be a decent manager. I don't know if he's ever, ever going to have the chance. Anyway, so he makes the pitch and Jericho says, hey, I usually start groups, not join them. So I've got one word for you. Maybe. And then he walked out. <laughs> so now the, I guess their equivalent of the bloodline cliffhanger is will Jericho join up with Don Fallis? Hmm. Yeah, you like Callus a lot more than I do. I think he's way too hokey. I do what I, I I will give credit when it's due. He can cut a promo, but I also just said the problem is he gets hokey and funny like the rest of the clowns here at the circus and diminishes the promo ability that he has. I think he could talk. I've never believed his promos. Going back to him being on ECW TV way back, I never believed him. It's always seemed like a guy performing and playing a role as he has here with his wild and crazy guy yeah. manager act. Uh, and then, I don't know. Um, I think Jericho, the best thing for Jericho would be time off the TV. <laughs> not a babyface turn. Not Sammy and Garcia beating him up because he's an old man or whatever. Just take some time off. Just go away for a while. How about a timeout room at AEW where when the kids get rambunctious, you can put them in the timeout room? That'd be a big room. So the Owen tournament matches from Collision were recapped. And that way you actually see Punk's face on this program. I'm sure the EVPs will try to nip that in the bud. And then Renee is back in the back with Roddy, uh, Roderick Strong and the doctor, who's, you know, giving him his prognosis or whatever. Roddy's in a neck brace from the power slam on a chair by Samoa Joe Saturday night. Adam Cole comes in to check on him, and it's all love. Hey, Roddy, I love you, love you. Hey, he gets a text from MJF and says, hey, my match is up, got to go. MJF's texting me, hey, I can't wait till we hit that sweet clothesline. Oh, he rolls his eyes at him. And when he walks off, Roddy's sitting there like, this fucking guy is now his friends with MJF, so something's going to happen. But what happened was at the 9 o'clock hour, and boy, I can't wait to hear the ratings on his program. MJF and Cole went to the ring for their match against Daddy Mac and the Butcher. So the, another uh, you know, slapped together team of two basically job guys. So this was a showcase for MJF and Adam Cole's odd couple pairing and to show their contrast, but then they might confine common ground. And the the match was, it really was all MJF because the whole idea was they isolated him and he would milk the tag and like Ricky Morton and, and he would sell 
and he'd try to get to Adam Cole, blah, blah, blah. And that was the whole thing, but it wasn't, it wasn't a real match, Pinocchio, because it's the fucking Butcher and Daddy Mac, and also it was all to build this deal with Cole and MJF. And But then in the process, again, the people are cheering MJF from the mountaintops, and everybody pokes the guy in the fucking eye, and they fucking throw babies in the air. It's amazing. He, they know what he's doing, and he can still get them. So I don't know. But anyway, um, obviously they won. But they won because they didn't do the double clothesline that MJF called for. Instead, Adam made the comeback when he finally got a hot tag, by the way. And it was a hot tag, got a big pop. And then Cole beats Daddy Mac by himself. But then MJF gets in and celebrates with him, trying to leech, you know, off of his celebratory nature. And then... <laughs> MJF asked for another bro session next weekend. And Adam says, well, okay, sure, why not? And then MJF says, one more thing, happy birthday. And streamers fall from the sky. And here comes a parade of guys bringing out a cake and balloons and party hats and noise. It looked like a party for my pet dog, Fifi. And they they sing happy birthday to Adam and tell him to make a wish. And then MJF mischievously tries to shove Cole's face in the cake, but Cole spins around and reverses it. And MJF takes a face first in the cake and laughs about it and sitting there. They're just having a wonderful time. And then Adam kneels down there to MJF with the cake on his face and says, in all seriousness, Max, you went to this much trouble to celebrate my birthday. Thank you, my friend. Pats him on the shoulder and leaves. And there is MJF laughing about the situation with the cake on his face. <sighs> There's something on somebody's face in this company. <laughs> Maybe more people with more substances, but... <laughs> Good Lord. <laughs> what? What's the matter with There's you? There's something on someone's face in this company. <laughs> I was thinking more of the egg on people's face or whatever. <laughs> well, um, yeah, there it is. I mean, again, if they're heels, then there's one thing about them doing this little buddy film stuff. But right now, one's a baby face, one's a heel. We'll see where it goes. But Adam uh, Cole can't be revealed as an idiot that fell for this from the devil and then was suckered in the end, that would make him look like a complete moron. Right. So the only other option is MJF becoming an angel or Adam Cole becoming a devil. <sighs> All right. Renee Moxley good now in the back with Jericho and Garcia and Sammy, and Garcia is upset that Jericho might leave them. Might leave them. Go play with somebody else. And Jericho says they need to go out and do great things without him always leading them and mentoring them. And coincidentally, Garcia and Sammy are teaming in the tournament. <laughs> so, oh my God, every team has to be, well, wow, that couldn't happen in a million years. Then 
I know you watched this. I got to be honest with you. At the bell, we were an hour and 27 minutes into this show, and we hadn't had a serious match yet, and here came Britt Baker and Ruby Soso. And I skipped ahead to the finish where Ruby cheated and won, but I understand you were transfixed and had to watch it back again. Well, no, I, I watched the show a second time, so I saw the match a second time. It wasn't very good, I don't think. That's the best I could say. I think Tony Storm should not be with the outcast. She should be on her own. She's a star. She's great in the ring. And uh, Britt and Ruby worked the match, and it was their unique style, and they tried hard, and the fans got into it. The fans seemed uh, forgiving, and that's what it was. Boy, I tell you what, I'd like to have a jury of the AEW fans. They will forgive anything. If I was up for murder, I'm sorry. Okay, you're good. Pretty much. All righty. Well, it was time for the main event of this television program. And remember, let's recap real, real briefly. We had Darby and Pockets against Swerve and Keith Lee for 20 minutes. Then we had the acclaimed and Billy Gunn against the Baker and the Bollywood Boys. Then we had MJF and Cole against Daddy Mac and the Butcher. Then we had Britt Baker and Ruby Soso. And the main event of this journey through ambivalence was Wheeler Useless against Twinkle Toes McFingerbang. This was the main event. This was something that they had been advertising through the show, expecting people to want to watch on purpose. And... <sighs> Again, you can't hot shot every week. I said that earlier. You have to build some things for the future and maybe take a hit on, you know, just getting some talent over. But this show was certainly focusing on very weird talent to try to get over. And you still got to have a match or two in the middle of all of this chaos that people might really want to see. And none of these were it, in my opinion. But they're going to try again. Like the the BBC club is going to try with useless, like Tony is trying with pockets. They look like Ned, and they're not really in any way striking examples of star power, but we like them, so we're going to put them on everything. All the guys wearing tape now. Is this a new invention? You're younger than I am, Brian. You have somewhat of an athletic past i understand taping the ankle taping the knee taping the wrist the white athletic tape kind of it gives you support it's like it, it effect if you get a good taper it's kind of like having a cast on your joint that's injured can't you know move anywhere but these guys with this it looks like you know their their it favorite like cartoon it, well it problem. looks like their favorite cartoon characters are on the tape and it's just haphazardly affixed to certain areas and it looks like it would do fuck all of nothing if you were injured in any way to support anything meaningful what the fuck is going on here if you were injured how the fuck would any of this help it's athletic tape that's used uh for sore spots it's supposed to help in some way by doing something there are some <laughs> well, people that think it's a placebo effect but Athletes do think that applying it to sore spots does help. 
It will, it will, it's something that will do something. I guess that's a question. Do you want a wrestler going out there wearing that stuff? Is it necessary? Is it, can you not work the match if you're not wearing that stuff? And do you want them going out there wearing that stuff? Does it add legitimacy or does it make it look bad? Well, it, everybody's starting to look the fucking same again. Everybody's all taped up, but from the looks of this tape, three strips over a shoulder and one around your goddamn goozle pipe or whatever, if the difference in me not being physically able to wrestle and being able to wrestle was this fucking tape, you're too close to the fucking line of being injured to be in the ring. If, anyway. you're, a, if you're a heel, why wouldn't you just start peeling the tape off? Well, because that would make a lot of sense. Right? And if the tape is helping this guy, he couldn't do this without the tape. He's obviously well, wearing what, it for a reason. What's the first thing you saw? Brock Lesnar and Cody Rhodes with Brock went after the fucking arm, right? Right. What's the first thing you would see in the territories when anybody had tape or had a cast on or had some type of support? The heel would take over and rip off the neck brace or start unwrapping the tape or do whatever the fuck. Fans would be screaming, yeah. Screaming bloody murder. They weren't screaming here. It, they may have been hopefully waiting for a bloody murder, but... 20 minutes was the time they had left when this thing got in the ring. And finally, old Twinkle Toes was about to put Wheeler away when Don Fallis came down to the ring and somehow managed all by his lonesome to distract the referee and every bit of security that came after him and suddenly take a shit appeared in the ring behind Twinkle Toes. And just then, Brian, guess what happened? I watched, but I don't recall, so I really do have to guess if you want me to guess. Well, I bet you wouldn't even guess, because I'll tell you what happened. Right at that point that Don Fallis distracted the referee and all the security and take a shit appeared oh. out of nowhere in the ring. I know what happened. <laughs> Behind Kenny, my DVR froze. That was the overrun. Because they can't manage time. If you can't get your finish in with one minute left on the air for the announcers to react to it and the people to digest it, you've shit the bed. And that's an old Vince McMahon rule, which is why they never go that close to going off the air without the finish. This is two and, weeks in a row. This is two weeks in a row they had the overrun. Yeah, but here's the thing. In the old days, Raw would overrun, what, 10 minutes, 12 minutes or whatever. It would be planned. It would be planned. We would, they would get an overrun, right? It was acknowledged. You're going to get this. They're calling up at the last minute going, well, we need another minute. We're not going to get this in. Because you don't schedule two-minute overruns. They just have to happen because the fucking program that's on can't get their shit together. And I know a lot of people are like, well, Brian should teach Jim, or he's too lazy to set his DVR for yeah. an extra five minutes. No, because it doesn't happen on any other program, wrestling or otherwise, that I record. I get all the finishes. I get the, cl the close of the program. I get the reveal of the murderer. I get everything except on AEW because they're so far behind on their time and there's, uh, there's such a lack of quality control that they barely get the shit in right before they go off the air. And that ain't my fault or my DVR's fault. And sometimes they got to have extra time to do it. 
So fuck y'all. Hey, real quick before we talk about anything else, what are your thoughts on overruns in general? Obviously, it was one thing during the Monday Night War when you were trying to one-up the show that just went off the air. You wanted to capture their viewers and get right. them to see something hot. When there was no more competition and it seemed to be more of a tool to trick people tuning into the network for the next show to see some of your show, what do you think of using the overrun? Well, the overrun originally was in the Monday Night Wars so that, you know, you would get that audience that had just been watching wrestling and now that program's off the air, maybe they'll switch over. And then later on, as you mentioned, it became a standard thing where they always had an overrun and it wasn't to try to, it, because Raw's ratings at that point were so so above most of the other programs, if not all on the network that they wanted to you know, keep people watching across the top of the hour and then maybe they'd flow right into their next show. But it now that again, there's, there's no head to head competition and there's not a lot of things that AEW has. It's keeping people's attention to the end of the program. We've seen that. And the WWE is managing to get the bloodline in that is drawing the ratings and is increasing the viewership before they go off the air at their regular time, I think they ought to do it every so often for an important match. And they ought to obviously schedule it with the network ahead of time, but not tell people and make the call at 1050 or whatever it is. Folks, this world title match is still going on and it's been going for some time. If, if we don't have a conclusion by the time we're scheduled to go off the air, we understand from the network that we will remain with this match until its conclusion. Then you get people, oh, shit. Well, that's special. That didn't used to ever happen. And then you, you'll pick up at the top of the hour the people tuning in for the program, but also nobody's going to switch out because they're, oh, this is a, something big's going to happen. If you do it every once in a while and you do it like that, it's a bonus, and it adds credibility that the matches don't just always end exactly on time by accident right it's a live sporting event things happen matches go long that's the kind of way that it's good but every week then people just expect it and it's a thing and it's not special well do you want to find out how special it was this week i i am almost willing to say that i will whistle dixie out my ass if people watch this program this was abysmal but I'm scared because, you know, the AEW fans are just one step above the Germans that like to have their balls nailed to a step stool. So I don't know. So just to confirm, you will or will not whistle Dixie at your ass? I if... said I'm almost willing to. Okay. Well, let's we'll see what happens. That may have been the right decision. This past week, AEW Dynamite, Wednesday, July 5th on TBS, on average, was watched by 855,000 viewers. Good Lord. So, again, they can't run them off. The 800 to 850 or 860 that of every Wednesday night, they can run them off over the course of the two hours, but they will come back the next week and start again. That's right, and that's indeed how the show began. They started again this week. Segment 1, quarter 1, 8 to 8.15 p.m., compiled by WrestleNomics here. Darby Allen and Keith Lee's backstage angle. And then Lee and Swerve versus Darby and Pockets with Picture and Picture. 
906,000 viewers. All righty, let's see where they go from there. And I believe, and I don't have anything in front of me, someone told me for the record that this week specifically was up off the Big Bang Theory. So they actually began Hmm. higher than the Big Bang Theory, for whatever that's worth. Good Lord. Segment two, the continuation of Lee and Strickland versus Darby Allen and Pockets with the post-match, the Nick Wayne video, Jack Perry and Hook's backstage confrontation, and the MJF Adam Cole video, 829,000 viewers. Jesus Christ, on a cracker, they lost 77,000 people in 15 minutes? And with that average, they've got to go back up somewhere. Segment three, 8.30 to 8.45 p.m., Billy Gunn and the Acclaim versus the Blade and the Bollywood Boys, with picture-in-picture, the post-match with the QTV girl, Eddie Kingston and John Moxley's promo and video, and then RJ City announcing that Matt Hardy has the team with Jeff Jarrett. 835,000 viewers. Well, they got 6,000 of them back. Segment four. The Chris Jericho, Don Callis live promo, excuse me, 8.45 to 9 p.m., and the CM Punk Samoa Joe video, 898,000 viewers. Okay, that is again 60, wait a minute, yeah, 63,000 more, so they're almost back to where they started from. Imagine that, Punk being in that quarter. Huh. The 9 o'clock hour, segment 5, Roderick Strong and Adam Cole's backstage angle, followed by Adam Cole and MJF versus The Butcher and Matt Menard, with picture-in-picture, 879,000 viewers. Back down 2019, but again, that, that has to be people curious about MJF and Cole, right? One can only assume, because what else would you watch that for? It's not the match, and I mean, there is something to be said here about yeah. show-wide star power, where you have someone who's been presented as a star, someone who's a company star, versus people who may not be. You know, it's like a squash match in the old days, but segments, so what is this now? Segment six. five. Segment no, six. That was, yeah. Excuse me, the overrun threw me off here again. That happened last week. Segment six, the MJF Adam Cole live promo post-match, Britt Baker's backstage promo, the Jericho Garcia and Guevara backstage promo, and the beginning of Ruby Soho versus Britt Baker, 859,000 viewers. So they only lost 20,000 on that, and boy, that's where they usually start hemorrhaging, so the last two quarters could tell the interesting tale. So quarter seven, 9.30 to 9.45 p.m., the continuation of Ruby Soho versus Britt Baker with picture-in-picture, the Outcast and Sky Blue confrontation, and the beginning of Kenny Omega versus Wheeler Yuta, 837,000 viewers. Okay, now people are getting the idea. There goes another 22,000. So we started at 9.06. We got, we dropped to 8.29. Second quarter, unbelievably enough, the worst so far. That usually doesn't happen. Orange Cassidy. It Well, there you go. It came back up almost to where they started, and they've lost another 61,000 since then. 
How many weeks have they had people tune in? You see Orange Cassidy and you go, I'll come back later. Come back later. But finally, and I'll do the overrun here too, quarter eight, 9.45 at 10 p.m., Kenny Omega versus Wheeler Yuta continued with picture in picture, 804,000 viewers, and 10 p.m. Well, hold on. I'm just going to say they held up better for that main event. They held up better than I would have thought. They only they only lost 100,000 or so people. Only about 10%. And finally, the two-minute overrun, 10 to 10.02 p.m., <laughs> the finish of the match and the uh, post-match brawl with the elite and the Blackpool folks, and Takeshita, 804,000 viewers. Same exact thing. In two minutes, you can't, you can't get credit for the quarter-hour number for only two minutes. I forget exactly how they quantify it, but unless you, in, at least back in the Attitude Era when we were starting to pay attention to that, unless something went like seven minutes or the majority of the quarter or something like that, you couldn't take credit for that number. I think they just dittoed because it was only two minutes because they, they didn't do it on purpose. They just needed the extra time. And that was this past week's AEW Dynamite. Well, I got to hand it to them. They kept a lot of their audience, too, on this rotten program. So Wednesday night is starting to shape up as being the night that people watch a rotten wrestling program. And Saturday night, they watch a good, logical wrestling program. And the fight amongst them is... Who's going to lose less of the audience that we start with? Who's going to run off fewer fucking viewers? And you know what? Whatever we want to say about the MJF and Adam Cole stuff, the viewers have reacted to it so far. I mean, this isn't the first week where it did an all right number. Yeah. Spike the number. And this is them against two guys that you knew weren't going to win the match. That you didn't even care about. You'd have to think about who were the opponents in that match. It would be hard to remember. It didn't matter. It was all about the Cole-MJF dynamic. So... Whatever we think about it, the AEW fans have really started to react to it. Yeah, well, no, and, and uh, honestly, as I said earlier, M- listening to MJF do something, anything, even silliness, is more entertaining than most of the rest of this program. So I can see that. <sighs> well, we're going to find out. We haven't even seen Collision yet. We're, by the end of this program, we'll have seen that too. We're doing a... Uh, a pause for more programming here later on, but it, again, in the meantime, the WWE audiences or viewership ratings with the whole bloodline thing is has gone through the roof, and they are the highest quarter hours of the the shows, and they involve almost no wrestling most of the time. But they're doing better than over here where they're trying to wrestle us to death in various ways, and that's pretty much exactly what they're doing. And they can't keep an audience because it all looks the fucking same. So it's interesting. WWE has the bloodline, which is such a rating smash right now, at the same time that they're negotiating their new TV rights deal. And they're not hotshotting it. They're drawing it out. Well, because they know the consistent numbers for a longer period of time is more important to the TV stations than, oh, that boy, that one show did a great number, and the next week it was the shits. That's what the the WWE wants to do, and they're not going to, they don't have to be in a hurry. 
But it just, you know, goddamn, with all these wrestling shows, it seems like there'd be one that could actually just give us a wrestling show. But we've got the kids and chaos, the kids in the hall, and we've got over here the fucking wrestling show equivalent of C-SPAN with a talk segment that draws all the viewers. So, I'm unimpressed. Well, moving along, Brian, should we layeth the smacketh down on the latest episode of As the Bloodline Turns? They got they had a couple of matches that got in the way on SmackDown last night, Friday, July 7th, I guess. They had a couple of them, but once you got past the matches, it was a good wrestling show. What'd you think? <laughs> I mean, it was interesting in a number of respects. It was at the Garden. I mean, that's a big part of the story there, and... It was a big success at the Garden, and what a big success is now is like 14,000 people. Or whatever. Enough, 15,182 is, is what they announced. Um, what, which, did they sell out the Felt Hallway? Well, yeah. See, that's the... But now we... Okay, in this day and age, and at these ticket prices, <laughs> the last thing we're going to do is scoff at 15,000 people. But let me ask you this that nobody has really been asking. They say, well, you know, the Garden the Holes... They used to sell out every month with 19 or 20,000 people, and then they'd sell out the Felt Forum for the closed circuit and every month. Like, well, yes, everything used to draw everywhere all the time. Isn't that a movie? But they legitimately sold out this setup. I don't know whether it's 15,182 or whatever, but even with the entranceway that blocks those seats off, they legitimately sold this out. Not only that, but they were telling the talent we can't give you any tickets for family or friends or mistresses or whatever because we're sold out to the bone. So they were really sold out of tickets. But the question that I want to ask now, that has anybody else asked this? I know the set looks purdy on TV. But what's 4,000 tickets at even the cheapest general admission price for a ticket to Madison Square Garden now because they announced it was the biggest gross ever yeah. in the history of the garden. So the average ticket price through the roof, even if it wasn't the most people. So is it $50? What's 4,000 times 50? You're good with See, math. See, I've, I've already got it. I've already got it. I was asking you. I was eating a blueberry. <laughs> God damn it. Now you blueberry eating motherfucker. <laughs> All right. It's 200,000. Is that Purdy set worth $200,000? You know well, what? I mean, After that Puerto Rico show where we saw a building without a set and the garden's a small building All for a big building. It's a small building. And if you lose that, set, it's, in, it's an intimate 20,000 seat arena. It really is. You know, it's not a 20,000-seat arena. I mean, it doesn't even look like the garden anymore. You don't see the entranceway. You don't see anything. And there's nothing that actually looks like the classic garden. Yeah. It's just another building. And they never had a long entranceway because it was a smaller... The, the way it was constructed. Again, out of pocket. Well, well it, it right was way. constructed in the 60s. And that's the way they were constructing... NBA sports arenas at that time where they didn't have the all the luxury boxes and they didn't have the expansive, you know, uh, uh, floor area as much and a blah, blah, blah. And it's in the middle of New York City, so they were working with space. They got as many people in there as they could. But you're right, when the old garden would just, like WrestleMania 10, the side entranceway that you saw across from the hard camera, it was 
50 feet to the ring. But when you looked out from the ring, there were 19,000 some people and everywhere you couldn't see any open space. So that's, you know, that's a heck of a, of a view, which I have seen not to toot my own horn, but toot toot. But so is it worth 200 grand to have that set? No, in my eyes, no. How much does it cost to bring the set there? Um, I, I and set it up. I have no fucking idea. Can you imagine the goddamn trucks hauling all that shit going down through Midtown Manhattan? 34th Street, yeah. I can't imagine, no. Christ on a cracker. Anyway, so it was smack down in Madison Square Garden, the biggest gross ever, sold out for the seating setup. And the first thing they see is the Usos entrance and they get a big pop and the Usos chance and the one fingers and they're doing the, they start to do the interview crowing about Roman Reigns getting beat and then Heyman and Solo interrupt and they walk down to the ring, you know, speaking and I look Paul now it's a fucking rib. He's got a microphone. He's got those two big heavy belts. He has to in a wearing a suit step through the ropes. It's I'm, I'm surprised they don't have him fucking patting his head and rubbing his stomach at the same time. But anyway, um, the Usos tell Paul, shut the fuck, shut up. They didn't say shut the fuck. The crowd will <laughs> handle that in a minute. It was an ad lib there. Yeah, shut, shut up, <laughs> but he won't do it because only one man in the WWE or in the world or whatever he phrased it, tells me to shut up. He's talking about Roman, and then Solo puts his hand over Paul's microphone, and everybody looks shocked. And just then, Roman's music plays. And here he comes, and as he's making his entrance, they go to a break. So we're going to break now in mid-interview, and the promos have a break. Not just any promo, but the promo the where he's going to confront yeah. the cousins who just super kicked him. My God, the allies are marching through the streets of Berlin and Hitler's diving into a hole. But we'll be right back after this word from Preparation H. <laughs> so, and it was only like 10 minutes into the show after they had done the recap of the Bloodline Civil War tag team match at the top and then you know, their beauty shots and then the use of all the business we just talked about. It's only 10 minutes that they go to break. So they come back. But now we found out why they went to break there. Because elsewise, they'd have had to have a commercial free show. Because when they come back, Roman... <laughs> I understand all this stuff is over. But at the same time, Roman gets in the ring, turns his back on his family members that he's just had this big Civil War match with and got beat by, and and still tells Madison Square Garden to acknowledge him while they just stand there and don't do anything. It, it, it To get everybody's shit in when there's animosity, it looks awkward sometimes. Do you see what I'm saying to I you? I completely agree with you. There shouldn't be any sense of comfort from anyone while any of these people are interacting right now. That's because they weren't on a Helix Sleep mattress. That's right. But anyway. Our good friends at Helix Sleep. And all, boy, we're going to be hearing from them and more people soon. Um, so basically, then the crowd starts chanting, you got beat, you got beat. And Roman, it, this is supposed to be a tribal court 
proceeding. I guess wrestlers court in the ring, but I, I, I get the idea of a tribal court bringing someone up on tribal charges or whatever, but they, and I'm not suggesting they should have had palm trees and a fucking sandbar in the goddamn ring. But they didn't really, this is just like an interview that broke out into why is Roman supposed to show up to be tried when they have no offense? That's what his story is. Neither one of you is the tribal yeah. chief. So how can this be tribal court? That was the Saddam Hussein argument when they tried him in Iraqi court. He's like, yeah, who yeah. are you to be a judge in Iraq? I'm Saddam Hussein. You know, Roman could have just sent a goddamn postcard saying, fuck you, I'm on the beach. You have no pullover. This is not a subpoena. I don't know. I thought there would be some other family members there of some sort. Something, some, yeah. some, not the Paul Heyman wise man, but like, goddamn, if they, Seeker. if King Curtis was still alive, it would have been great. Just, well, somebody like neutral, not in the family. Who's the wise man for all the Polynesians? Here comes King Curtis. Can you imagine if one of these things was happening and Afa and Sika just stood in the back, dressed like Afa and Sika, arms crossed, watching it? It would mean so much. Yeah. Anyway, so they went ahead with it anyway because the Usos say they will not be manipulated and they, they showed a video. It marked Exhibit A. And it was it was a good video, but it was basically a compilation of all the examples of Roman Reigns pushing the Usos around, talking down to them, pie-facing them, kicking them out, depriving them of dessert. I mean, just every kind of offense. And you, one almost wondered by the time it was over with, why did they put up with all of this at, to this point, right? This is way beyond. But anyway, at that point, the crowd started a chant that they weren't just muting a word. They just dropped the goddamn audio completely out of the program for yeah. like 15 or 20 seconds. The whole show. Yeah. And, and you know, I'm thinking, my God, if they don't shut up, the, the, the guys in the ring have no way of knowing when the audio is being muted by the network. Right? Oh, I, thought, I thought they had to know because I thought that's why maybe they were delaying no, it a little bit. No, the, well, they were, I think they were figuring... Well, we can't talk over whatever this... I'm assuming it was fuck, but who knows? But I think they knew... They don't have any official way of knowing we're pressing the button, we're, we're on solid mute for 20 seconds, or they're trying to mute right. fuck, but you whatever. But if you're in the ring and you hear a chant of fuck every few seconds, you have to figure the network's either dropping the whole right. thing out, or at least that part, so I shouldn't talk. Yeah, and that's why, you know, they were kind of milking around, but I'm thinking, my God, if they... If anybody, because the Usos look like they get a little excited. So I'm thinking if anybody says anything important, we're not going to hear it. And then Roman responded to them when they got audio back. No, I didn't. So I assume it's you fucked up, you fucked up. But again, whereas AEW will not even, I think they've given up, but they tried to bleep shit for a while. They've obviously told people to stop saying things because there was that plethora of shit for no reason and etc but tbs or tnt the warner folks they were not as as uh conscientious as fox is fox just says fuck all the audio until they quit so anyway so roman then tells the usos hey that's not who i am 
That's who I was forced to be. It's like, you made me do this, right? I did it for you. And then they had to drop the audio out again because it is New York. And they're a bunch of foul-mouthed, little potty-mouthed people up there. We're not as bad as Philly. Well, that's true. But what is? So That's true. Then <laughs> the Roman says, I didn't need the bloodline. The bloodline needed me. And I mean, I'm not doing justice to this because he was... He was fired up and he was emoting and he did a great job with all this. He was indignant. He was mad of all these different things. And then finally he says, I don't need this shit anymore. I don't want it. I'm done. And he and Jay both throw their microphones down and Roman puts, and this was milked to the nth degree. That cow had not a drop left. Takes his lay and takes it off and puts it on Jay's neck. And he was crying. Roman was, did you see the tears running down his face? I did. What was, I can't imagine what he, he was thinking of. He was his, his, you know, possibly he was thinking about his fucking paycheck flying out the window if he ever lost this spot. That would be a tragedy at this point because he's the man. But he throws down the belt. He gets on his knees in front of Jay like he's just named him or appointed him as the new tribal chief, and he's just done with all of it. He's a broken man. And then he reaches up and hits Jay right in the balls. <laughs> Boom. And Jimmy is, is like, what the fuck just happened? And it takes him a second to realize. And then he gets on Roman, and Solo pulls him off. And as he throws Jimmy across the ring and Jay's selling his nuts, Solo sees the lay laying there. Is that the proper way to say that? The lay was laying there. They had laid the lay down. Lay, 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 lay. Lay, 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 lay. That'd be badass. <laughs> if we laid the lady. No, I'm quoting Dylan, not Moxley. Oh, so Moxley you're saying sounds like Dylan. No, I would never no. say that about Bob Dylan. Dylan sounds like Moxley. No, I mean, saying? now I'm picturing oh. their two voices. Nothing alike. Well, maybe a little bit. Well, see? Hey, hey, hey. Hey, hey Renee. Once upon a time, you man, pin, 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 didn't you? Just walk away, Renee. <laughs> well, there you have it. I thought that was the left bank, though. No, that was the four tops. I'm stealing their material. So... <laughs> Solo was looking at that lay and the camera gets it and the people got it too because he looked and he looked back at Roman who's still, you know, like about to get up and go, what the fuck's going on here? And he studied and the fans start chanting, put it on, put it on. And Solo starts to hand it to Roman, but he didn't quite hand it to Roman and Jay attacks him and then Solo levels Jay. And Roman Superman punches Jimmy, and they go to the floor. And they tied Jay up in the ropes, and they hit Jimmy with the belt over and over again, or Roman did, and made Jay watch the whole thing, and then hit Jimmy with the stairs. And then Jay got free and tackled Roman, but Solo spiked him. <laughs> and then Roman says, finish him. And Solo splashes Jimmy through the fucking announce desk and they finally go to the break and now we're 35 minutes into the show and that's why they went to the break I guess on Roman's entrance but uh, but that's what the people came to see 
But there was a lot of emoting and talk. And then they come back after the break, and Jimmy's on the stretcher. And he's being wheeled to a wambulance. And they recapped what had happened before. And, and Jay's, oh, I'm with you. I'm with you, Jimmy. I'm with you. And the ambulance pulls out and off they go. And we're like, holy shit. And they told him what hospital he's going to in Manhattan. And he said, I'm out of here. And he came back. Yeah. No, um, I mean, it was long. And I actually thought the beatdown was too long. And then there was a comeback. I mean, you calling it, it was like listening to a guy call a football game in the 30s. Yes. Nonstop. Yeah, like like just... this and this and then this. And it took the, and finally the officials came down. There was Adam Pierce and his crew of suited stooges, but it took them like five to seven minutes to, to notice that there was a slaughter taking place in the middle of Madison <laughs> Square Garden. Yeah, where are the cops? Cop jumped in the ring when Roddy Piper shoved Cindy Lauper with his foot. There's no cops here for this? Yeah. <laughs> well, to be fair, the Usos didn't look as fragile as Cindy did. You think Heyman... Like in terms of arms and shoulders, is in the best shape he's ever been in from these long segments, just holding those belts. Just holding. That's I know. He was out there for half an hour with those fucking. Maybe he's had like a, a a replica made that is like of of very realistic looking plastic or something. No, he's got to have thirty pounds on his shoulders plus the extra fucking hundred eighty or two hundred pounds around his midsection. Oh, stop it! I'll leave him alone. Be nice. It's been a long time but since it, that match. Um, you know, <laughs> which I won, which you won, one I won, you took his pants off. That's the match. Yes, it was the, uh, he got me distracted here. <laughs> I got you distracted by taking off Paulie's. You know pants. why? Cause I was trying to remember, did he have purple underwear? He ran away. It was, it was, like, it, was <laughs> it was, it was light blue colored underwear with a, a white waistband. He didn't even go to the trouble. <laughs> remember when I got fucking stripped. Every in the Superdome at every night of the myriad in Oklahoma City, I had big boxer shorts with goddamn large red hearts on them. And I'll have you know that I couldn't find big boxer shorts with large red hearts on them, so I had to get white boxer shorts and a red sharpie and make my own. No. Yes, I did. No, you did not. Yes, get I, out did. Of here. I big, did not know that. Get out of here. Red thick red marker and drew those fucking hearts on it. God, I couldn't find them. I'm like, this is the most classic comedy fucking prop of all time. And I couldn't find them anywhere in the state of Louisiana. Jimmy Hart used those too in WWF. Whenever well, he got yeah, his pants ripped off. That's the thing to do. And it was even more apropos for Jimmy Hart. Oh, cause they're little red hearts. There you go. You should have called him. He probably had a hookup. Well, this was, you know, I was, I was, I was on the sperm of the moment. I realized I was getting stripped. When you, yeah. when you see a segment like this, and again, it went a long time and you said the right thing. It gave the fans there what they came to see. They came to watch the show. They didn't come to see matches. Let's be honest. Yeah. You're seeing more and more chatter because more and more people are talking about it. And if they're talking about it, there's probably a reason behind it about Roman Reigns should be getting an Emmy for his performance on the wrestling program on Fox. <laughs> What are your thoughts? Because, I mean, again, I was watching this, and at one point, I'm like, okay, you know, for the psychological aspect of the storyline, I understand what he's doing. But on the other hand, I'm like, is he auditioning for every casting agent right now? Look at Possibly. The, look at the range of emotions I could do in 20 minutes <laughs> in front of a live audience. And see, so I think you asked me one time before, I said, it's an insult 
to what the wrestling business is supposed to be to award anyone publicly for their great acting. But at this point, since the WWE and really the wrestling business anymore, and the only interesting thing about it is Roman Reigns' fucking acting, I can't... Can we come up with at least a category like best acting in a sports presentation? Or, you know, I don't know. But it's, it's, they have successfully, I guess, created an audience at Madison Square Garden, the place that Vince Sr. says, as goes the garden, goes the business. The hallowed hall, their shrine. Now, people, <laughs> sell it out and come to see this dramatic rendition punctuated by brief wrestling matches. 30 years ago, the crowd would have set the seats on fire if they got the matches at a wrestling show, at a WWF show, that they got on this program and they were happy to pay the highest prices in the history of the world to fucking see it. Yeah, even the live Piper's Pits at Madison Square Garden could only go so long. Oh my God. And then they, they might want to get in the ring and fucking get the hook themselves to get on with it. I remember how impatient those people were. What do you think about the idea they set these records with this garden show and this more than likely is the final Madison Square Garden show under Vince McMahon's sole ownership? Well, you know, actually, it's kind of fitting. It's apropos because he took over wrestling in Madison Square Garden when it was running 12 times a year and selling a building out every time with people, not sets. And he didn't like the wrestling business, so he wanted to be sports entertainment. And 40 years later, they can only run once or twice a year, and they don't draw as many people as they used to, but they pay ridiculously more money to come and there's almost no wrestling on the show. It is now the officially the South Park episode WTF where Vince came to scout the kids backyard wrestling federation. And all they do is get in the ring and a spotlight in them and emote. How apropos. Hey Jim, before we go further here, I wanted to mention to you because you brought up logically how there's not much wrestling on this episode of SmackDown. I was surprised before it aired, people started getting in touch with us on Twitter. There was an LA Knight hit row confrontation before the show went on the air. LA Knight got a monster reaction in the garden and they didn't put it on the show because they didn't have enough time for it. <laughs> it's blown up on their YouTube. It's like the most popular video off SmackDown, not the bloodline, but the LA Knight confrontation with hit row. Good Lord. So we should check it that out before, you know, either the drive through or whenever else we record. Well, yes, and well, and let me tell you what else they had on this program that prevented them from showing that hot piece of video. And why did they do it before the the show went on the air? Was it ever supposed to be on this program? It is exclusive to YouTube as of right now, I believe. <laughs> so LA Knight's YouTube exclusive videos are getting more hits than... Because we know it wasn't because of flop dollar. Except, did he fall down again? I haven't watched it yet, but I shall. If he fell down again, it may be because of him. But anyway, 
So the first match of the SmackDown program, the bell rang 42 minutes into the show. It was for the U.S. title with uh, our boy Austin Theory against Seamus. And they started at 100 miles an hour throwing fucking shots and boom, 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 and literally went 30 seconds and went to the break. 30 seconds. I was like, what? And they came back about three minutes later, three and a half, and they did a little bit more things, <laughs> a little bit more things. And they went under three minutes and they went to the break again. And I was thinking, I'm now pretty much completely disinterested in whatever the fuck they're going to do. And when they came back, they were going back and forth and suddenly purely deadly came to the ring and Seamus beat them up and then hit theory with his finish, but only got a two count. And then here came Ridge and Butch and they fought purely deadly. And there was chaos reigning at ringside and Seamus booted one of the deadlies and theory schoolboyed him and pulled his trunks one, two, three. And that was in two minutes. So they managed to have a match in three different segments where there was only like fucking five minutes of it shown on the air. And I'm sure it was great. I bet, you know, it seemed like the people live were liking it. Just want to make a correction. The, Hit Row LA Night Confrontation is number two from SmackDown behind the Tribal Court, but in front of Jay Uso's return to confront Roman Reigns. Okay, well, that's important to know. We have to keep it straight here. Uh, speaking of keeping it straight, at the nine o'clock hour, they felt they felt sure that the bloodline was a sure thing enough that they could put any goddamn thing at the nine o'clock hour. So we got wallering with Waller. If you turned on SmackDown at nine o'clock and you saw that face in the ring, would you stick around? I, I don't want to put the guy down. I don't know. Who the <laughs> fuck the even fuck? knows who the fuck he is? Well, they're trying to they're trying in their own special way to get him over. Well, in their own special way. You don't say, okay, this guy looks like every other nerd in the world and nobody knows who the fuck he is, so we're gonna give him 20 minutes to talk to other people. All righty, so he brought out Edge. You know what's crazy? I guess because the first segment went so long, and I didn't even look at the time, even though by the end of it, it felt like it was going really long, I didn't realize this was 9 o'clock. Yeah. Because the show moved by so quick because of that. I thought this was actually earlier in the show. That's crazy. Yeah, th that's the thing is the, the, the tribal crew, you get enmeshed, involved, enraptured, invested, in the bloodline stuff, and then when it's over with, the, the matches go bang, 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 because there's nothing there, and then suddenly they talk to you for 20 fucking more minutes. But in this case, it was only about eight minutes, because after eight minutes, we found out that Edge was going to wrestle Waller tonight. Ah, oh, shit. So then, did I miss anything in that? I mean, he just started insulting Edge, and then he announced that Edge was going to retire which Edge was upset about. And then he announced that he wasn't going to retire. He was going to fight Grayson Waller tonight, which would be the debut of Grayson Waller, who they've been showing on this show for weeks, and now we get to see him wrestle. There you go. Speaking of wrestling, AJ Styles versus Karrion Cross with Mia Yim and AJ's corner, Scarlett and Karrion's corner. Karrion's, Karrion's corner. See, that'll give him a talk show where he can go out there and 
have a big clock behind him. Tick tock, tick tock. <laughs> it's time for Carrion's corner. So they started this. <laughs> well, Bailey had ding dong. Why can't Carrion Cross have tick tock? I agree. Maybe a crow. And then Karrion Cross could bring Andrew Dice Clay on, and Andrew Dice Clay could go hickory dickory dock. This chick. Yeah, was- I, don't, I don't know if Fox is going to allow that on the air. Having enough problems with the bloodline promos. So with AJ and Carrion, they started at 100 miles an hour. Carrion Cross is beating AJ up. And then after about a minute and a half, Scarlett tried to interfere and Mia took her out. And AJ hit the phenomenal flying forearm and pinned him one, two, three. It didn't last two minutes. So my how... I hope that nobody out there has got a big boatload of carry and cross stock. I believe the value has dropped in recent weeks. Yeah, there's so, nothing, else, nothing else to say about that. I mean, you barely remember he's on the show, and then they had him choke out AJ a few weeks ago, and this is the follow-up to that. Well, by God, he'll, he's learned his lesson now, hasn't he? It takes a good man to beat him, but it don't take him long. So anyway, then... We got Oscar for an in-ring promo. And she got in the ring and she screamed at us for about 10 seconds. And then Bianca Belair ran out and hit the ring and just started beating the shit out of Oscar. What'd you think of that? She didn't skip. She didn't smile. She ran out there and just started throwing. Well, yes. Yes. I mean, this was, this was, I'm about to get to the chaotic nature of this. It was the most exciting two minutes in sports. That's what I'm saying. Oscar's in the ring, screams for 10 seconds. Bianca hits the ring and beats her up, but Charlotte comes out and jumps Bianca. But EO Sky comes in and hits Oscar with the briefcase. But there's Bailey, as Bianca gets on Bailey. And EO tries to cash the case in on Oscar, but she couldn't quite because she didn't hand it to the referee. So the referee didn't ring the bell, and Charlotte kicked EO Sky. And then they all quit fighting. And we went to the break, and that whole thing didn't last two minutes. So it's not that it wasn't exciting. It was just like somebody speaks for 10 seconds. Here comes people running in, girls running in the ring, beating each other up, and then they just quit, and we're done. 105 seconds or whatever. So that was the fastest two minutes in SmackDown. When they formatted the show, did they know the bloodline was going to go as long as it did? Is this intentional? It doesn't look like it. Is it intentional that they want just small matches? Have they realized that it won't chase away the viewers? It may keep their attention in between the bloodline stuff that people care well, about. But that wasn't even a short match. That was like, uh, go run now. We've got to do it now. I mean, I've given instructions like that on live TV or live to tape when you're drastically, you need to get something done. Is that just go do it? It's like a panic thing, but. That's what I, I picture. I picture like the hallways of the Ed Sullivan show, just people being pushed yeah. around like, go, 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 you're go, on. Go. <laughs> hey, one night in Baltimore, Eddie Edwards was supposed to run in on a Ring of Honor match at the finish, and he fucking forgot. And I was in the goddamn truck, and I'm like, send Eddie. Send Eddie. And I hear back, we can't find Eddie. I'm like, what the fuck? <laughs> and I jump out of the truck, and I run down the ramp back into the building we're using as I come in. There's the goddamn curtains and they found Eddie and they're rushing him. And I've got my arms as I'm running to him. I've got my arms out like, where were you? And he's got that face on like I fucking forgot. And I grabbed him by the left arm and I arm whipped him through the entranceway. I said, go do it now and shot him. 
<laughs> oh fuck me! Plus, it was it was in the middle of summertime, as I recall. So it was about ninety two degrees with high humidity, and I was in a fucking suit. <laughs> All right, so so Edge then had a match. Oh, the answer to your question about the time. They went to break on purpose in the Roman entrance because they knew, I'm sure, that the second segment was going to be equally as long or a little bit longer than the first one, which would have been 15 minutes. It turned out to be 25 minutes. I had a feeling, or I have a feeling, that there was some element of cutting through the rest of the show to make, because you can't just say, okay, we'll take 10 minutes out of the next segment. The next segment might be eight minutes. So you have to, on the fly start barking commands, whoever's in charge of that, hopefully not Vince, um, you know, cut a minute off this match, cut a minute off this live interview, cut a minute off seg seven, drop this fucking pre-tape out of seg nine, you know, whatever the case. And you've got, to, and then if somebody else goes long, then you want to fucking set them on fire. But hey, speaking of setting people on fire. <laughs> I knew that was going to be the transition. <laughs> here's somebody that deserves to be immolated. Grayson Waller taking on Edge. And I wrote, Waller looks like he belongs in AEW. Because he's the same generic, young-faced, generic haircut. Young-faced. Young-faced, generic haircut, bland body. I'm, I don't know how this... Vince must not have as much power as we thought anymore. If this guy's, he looks like a, he ought to be muffin top Taylor's cousin from Australia. Anyway, they went two minutes to the break. Then they came back and they went a little while on this one. This was apparently the, the wrestling match of the evening and edge finally won with a spear. And I'm saying, okay. I'm, so Grayson Waller, it, how does getting beat help this guy get earn a talk show or get over or be considered a fucking star if he ain't good enough to fucking win the match you're booking him in at this point? Then how about just don't book him in it? Only book him in shit he can win. I didn't understand that. Uh, I mean, obviously Edge is a bigger star, but what the fuck? He's obviously someone they like. They liked him in NXT. They liked him enough to bring him up here. They liked him enough to give him this interview segment out of nowhere. And it hasn't really been for me. I've been waiting to see him in the rings. I didn't watch him in NXT, or if I did, I don't remember it. I was a little surprised about the physique. Uh-huh. And I was surprised about a finish, but I wasn't really into the match. I'm not, I haven't been into Edge in a while. Edge is kind of... I need Edge to do something else. <laughs> you need Edge to get a little more edgy. Somehow, yeah. And not in a stagey kind of way. His promos got very, like, performy, and it took me out of uh, any of his stuff. Performative, I think, would probably be a better term yeah. than formy. Yeah, performy. Performy. Okay. Performy. Well, but now the performance we've all been waiting for, because the main event on the show is we're back in the ring for an interview. Well, first in the locker room, Paul's there with Roman and Paul tells Roman Reigns, hey, Jay's back in Madison Square Garden. 
Apparently, they found the one hospital in New York that can fucking uh, admit and process and give a prognosis on a patient and somebody can leave in an hour and 10 minutes. So Jay's back in Madison Square Garden. He's looking for Roman Reigns, and Roman says, well, I'll be in the ring. And they go to the break. And now they come back, and at least they spared us. They did another entrance for the people. The whole fucking Roman solo and Paul with the music and another acknowledge me. And I'm thinking they got eight minutes left on the air, right? And as soon as they acknowledge him, the Usos music hits and they're looking for Jay and they're looking for Jay. And here comes Jay through the arena. He's a man of the people. He bumped into a fucking balding plumber about halfway down the cheap seats, knocked him ass over tea kettle, continued on his way. That's my gimmick. And in, in the ring he came. See, he was giving Roman a little psychological warfare. Roman used to do that, didn't he? Isn't that where Moxley stole it? But anyway, so he comes through the arena, and the first thing, he his solo comes out to meet him. He tackles solo. Boom, 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 and he dispatches solo and then he anguishes about whether to attack Roman. And finally, he grabs a chair and rolls it a ring, and he whacks Roman. And goddamn, they're going to, but then there's Solo back, and he grabs the chair, and Jay hits a super kick on Solo and takes that chair and just wears him, just beats him like grandma's rug with that chair. While Roman and Paul bailed out to the entranceway and were watching from a safe distance. So you know that's going to make the next tribal court highlight video. And then Jay got Roman's belt. And he cuts the final promo that he's judge, jury, and executioner. And he made the challenge to Roman, me and you, one-on-one. -on -one, let's settle this. Accept my challenge. So now they've made... An interesting main event marquee matchup out of one of the Usos against Roman Reigns. I don't think anybody thinks he's going to win the belt, and I don't think anybody cares at this point. Remember we talked about it. You can't, you couldn't have break the Usos up when everybody was wondering what was going to happen and may want a babyface, want a heel, or even want a sick. You'd have an odd Uso. But now they've kept them together as a team but they've managed to, because of their different personalities that they portrayed in this, they've managed to elevate one to where the people just want to see him fight Roman, even if they're not thinking, some of them may think he'll take the belt. He's not going to, but most people won't care. You see what I'm saying? Yeah. I don't think you could have Jey Uso win the belt. I mean... In a way, I still wonder if it... I mean, not wonder, I still think it's supposed to be the Cody trajectory, but who knows? If they're, and they are, teasing an eventual solo turn, I don't know if Solo's that guy. I mean, it would instantly elevate him, and he's been portrayed as nothing but a badass. We really have not seen him presented weak, even when he gets beaten up with chairs or pinned. He you know, comes back quickly. He comes back quickly. I mean, Yokozuna got the belt... You know, funny enough, another family member, but more about someone coming in being presented like a badass and quickly getting the belt, and you just kind of started to believe they were the champion. I don't know if that would work with Solo. That's, I guess, the question. They're obviously going to do Jay versus Roman at SummerSlam. They're teasing the Solo babyface turn. 
Where do you see this going or what should they do now? Or is, can you even answer that question? Well, I would be highly surprised if Solo turns anytime soon because that would be very quick. And they've been milking this again for a while, but also it would diminish it. They can tease Solo, and because Solo is such a man of few words and has the stern demeanor and blah, 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 they can tease that for a long time, and people will believe it can happen because it already happened with the Usos. But another turn that quickly would step on the first turn, and it would lessen the second turn's impact. And then where do you go? You can always, you've got a lot of teases that you can tease now, but once... Once the candidate commits, then you know he's either going to win the race or not. So I don't think they want to answer the solo question anytime soon. And again, SummerSlam for Roman and Jay is great. And then I don't think I, I, Solo's not going to win the belt either. It's not going to happen. And that's nothing against him, but he's not going to be the undisputed WWE champion anytime in the next couple of years. Cody, and we, It'll be Cody or it'll be somebody else before it's either Uso or Solo. But I don't think they even need to pull a trigger on Solo till the end of this year. Well, we shall see. Because again, they're teasing it now. And it's not just well, this week. They're, they're yes, starting to amp it up a little. They teased us on Cody winning the title for fucking a year. Five years. Oh, a year. Well, yeah. I mean, you know, a year straight. <laughs> But no, I th you know, again, in, unless they have another Samoan or someone else that can join Roman's side with Paul, they're not going to break Solo away from him that quickly or in the very, very near future. That's what I'm saying. If they don't have another member of the Samoan family ready to go, should they have a cousin Lance? Lance and Oahe. Yes, they, they, they do. <laughs> yes, that's uh, Lance, Lloyd, Larry. And uh, Lawrence. Well, that was SmackDown. As, as well as Lyle. <laughs> Lyle Anawahi. He's the uh, he's the Zeppo marks of the the group, though. All right. All right. That was SmackDown. What in the wide world of sports is going on and being SmackDown over at the Wrestling News Arcadian Vanguard 605 branch of this happy family? Find out what's happening with the happy family. Gummo and Chico, Harpo, Groucho, and even Zeppo. With the Arcadian Vanguard Podcast Network, all the shows, all the information on Twitter at Super Podcasts or on Facebook, facebook.com slash Arcadian Vanguard. A few notes, of course, get the wrestling news. Get it today. Get it every day for free. Your daily wrestling newscast. Newscast. I said it in a weird way. Your daily wrestling newscast. Cast. Your daily wrestling newscast coming at you every single morning. Get all the news, everything that's happening in wrestling without opinion, without conjecture, without star ratings, without match reviews, just actual news. Get it directly from the wrestlingnews.com or wherever you find your favorite podcast. Look for Arcadian Vanguard's The Wrestling News. Also, want to make mention I am now on Instagram and threads. For anyone who wants to see show-related stuff that I may post, including some oh, of the... Oh, well, aren't, aren't you so fancy now? Instagram and Threads. Well, people ask if you're going to get on these things. Threads is only available on your smartphone, and Instagram, most people use through their smartphone. Do you intend to get on these? Yeah, I, I intend to get on them like I intend to get on a goddamn patch of fucking red-hot fucking fire ants. 
Exactly. Well, see my fire ants. Look for Great Brian Last on Instagram and Threads. I post some stuff like Guess the Program and various other things. Check it out today. And of course, the 605 Super Podcast. The Mothership! That's right, lady. Go through the archive today at 605pod.com. Available wherever you find your favorite podcasts. The Mothership. Well, we've come to the point in the program where we have to stop talking about wrestling so we can go watch some more wrestling. And then through the miracle of modern technology, we'll come back and talk about more wrestling without you ever having known, you being the listener, that we've been gone. Is that correct, Brian Last? That is correct. Are you ready to do this? Yes. Let's travel through time. That was badass. Okay, here we are, talking about Collision from last night, July the 8th, emanating, possibly inseminating or whatever, from Regina, Saskatchewan. Could they? I swear to fuck, if Troy Graham, the dream machine, was here, Brian, he'd be good. Buttermilk, buttermilk, it's a buttermilk run. They literally book punk uh, to be the star of a new Saturday night program and they put him in Regina, Saskatchewan. What about fucking Oshkosh, Greenland? Juno. Is the, is, Juno, Alaska. Juno, Alaska. It, why don't they put him on the island of Antarctica or the continent of Antarctica or whatever? The island. <laughs> the island of Antarctica. <laughs> I'm going to the islands this holiday season. Yes, Antarctica. <laughs> well, it gets, could be an island. It's a big island. It's a small continent. Nevertheless, Regina is where they were. And again, I think there's interior forces working against this show. Nevertheless, we know about the, uh, we've talked about the ticketing issues and that they've blanketed themselves all over Canada over the last several weeks. Well, in this case, I've never I've never been to Regina with the goddamn WWE, all the crazy offbeat places that I've been to. But it apparently was a small, boisterous crowd because it had the feeling to me at the start of kind of like a big TV studio wrestling show because... <laughs> You could tell there were there were people excited to be there, but not a lot of them. So they do the the pre-tapes at the start, the brief pre-tapes of the guys in the feature matches, which is a good touch, makes it look like a wrestling program, hooks you at the start. Okay, not droning on, but a pithy comment. I want to see what's fucking happening. Then they go into Elton John, and then when they come out, instead of fading from Elton... Elton kept playing, and it was no Mussolini, just Reggie Dwight. And here came Punk. <laughs> I don't remember Bernie Toppin writing those lyrics. Well, it, it was, you know, it was uh, Bernie had, had a period. You know, Adderall's a hell of a drug. <laughs> but, uh, <laughs> <What>? so, <laughs> So it it seemed like an okay reception to me as far as whether or not people disliked punk in Canada. Uh, they chanted CM Punk, CM Punk, and many people cheered. Many people had the shirts on, but there weren't many people. That's the problem. There was, there was nobody there. There was no people, Jerry. 
but he did a, a great opening speech, a rah-rah speech, putting over Canada, the Owen Hart tournament, the cup. And he did the, instead of getting in the ring, he did the promo on the floor in front of the people where you could see people enjoying it behind him. And obviously nobody trying to sneak up and stick a shiv in his ribs. So that was good. And then he kissed the cup. And you know, he's a hockey guy. He likes cups. A good intro uh, to the show. Uh, and, and you know, uh, prefaced what we were going to see with the Owen Hart tournament matches. I think that probably... Punk coming out and talking probably hooked him better than Starks and Hobbs starting to wrestle right off the top of the program. Your thoughts? I think he kind of put it over more than anyone else has on their show. Yeah. The idea of this tournament and how important Owen Hart is to him, as he put it, and various other people in the locker room, that's the strongest the tournament's been put over. And like you said, not a big crowd, but a good crowd, a hot crowd, and it helped everything. And there was an energy from the moment he came out there. And I've said it before, I'm a big believer, get Punk out there right away, even if it's only briefly, just to let people know he's not going away. He'll be here at the end of the show. And they went right from there into a package on Punk and Joe, because now that Tony owns the Ring of Honor library, back to their previous matches, but with modern comments. And again, serious, sports-like presentation. Good job. Both get didn't drone on. But it made something out of their previous conflicts. And the fact that it had been... 18 years since they've been in a ring together and, you know, in this situation and, and punk has never beaten Joe. It, it was three and oh, so. Did you think that this match deserved more, not, not to take anything away from it and we'll talk about the match and take away from the tournament, but do you think it deserved more than just a match on the show? Should it have been a pay-per-view match with the kind of build they could do for Joe versus punk? No. Because what they're doing, this was part of the build for Joe versus Punk. We haven't seen this match the last time. This is, this, when we get there, I'll show you what I think. There's a number of ways they can go and things they can do, but Punk and Joe on pay-per-view right now would have gotten interest from all the people who have been dedicated, diehard, hardcore fans and Ring of Honor fans for 20 years or whatever. But presenting this as a way to start hostilities in the current year between punk and Joe and continue them going can build to a bigger match. Once we get everybody accustomed to this because, and, and again, yes, they did have some good matches in ring of honor, but you can't just show 15 minutes of this goddamn ring of honor match recorded on VHS 18 years ago on national television. And they don't look like that anyway anymore. Well, Joe does, but <laughs> nevertheless. Well, Punk doesn't have blonde hair well, anymore, does he? Joe looks a little bigger than he used to. Well, but that's <laughs> like, you know, so golly, you you gained five pounds, happy Humphrey. I mean, no, I'm not calling Joe fat, but yeah. he doesn't look appreciably different than he used to. Compared him to happy Humphrey. Not even Big Humphrey, but Happy Humphrey. He was a happy man. Quit it. If you had Harley Race tickling your taint with a garden hose every week, you'd be happy too. So then they went to the Owen Hart tournament match between Ricky Starks and Powerhouse Hobbs. And of course, Hobbs had QT Marshall, Solo, No Comorato, Oragogo, and the miscellaneous white girl with him. 
And Brian, we've been fans of both these guys. We said that both of them deserved better opportunities and they should have been pushed. And every time that we see them against other people, we feel that way. But is this the second time we have seen Starks versus Hobbs? And tell me what you thought, but do these two just not click? That is what I think. And I did have the same thought as you. I remember the previous time we saw them, because remember, they were a team. They were even mm-hmm. not a team. They were associated with Team Taz. And then they broke up and maybe I'm wrong. Did they go like right to a They no had DQ one match that was underwhelming and a finish came out of nowhere and blah. And no, was that, was, that was the second match, wasn't it? Didn't they go right to a no DQ match and it was underwhelming? And then they went to a singles match and it was quick? Yes, yes, they did. And then it was so we this. went underwhelming quick and underwhelming. And I have to be honest, I like Powerhouse Hobbs, but him having a jobber faction with him drags him down. It doesn't elevate them. It doesn't help him. Well, they're about to fix that. Better do it quick. Better not be well, him no, getting. They, they, it better they, not be him getting into a feud with them. That's what was I'm the finish of. of this. Not the the end of that. Oh no! I would have to. <laughs> we'll see about that. But keep going. Well. Basically, on this match, anybody wants to watch it, they don't click. They they just, these two don't click. I don't know what's going on. Uh, but they did the best they could. And at one point, like when Starks went for the spinning DDT, he slipped on the ropes. And, and this is a problem. Starks probably has more experience than Hobbs, I would think, definitely. And Hobbs was would have been in control of this. But if they'd had Hobbs in a fucking program and had him in the ring on a regular basis against more experienced foes, he might have learned something by now. When he went for the spinning DDT, Starks did, and slipped on the ropes, all Hobbs had to do was just block it, just stand there on him and stop him and go to pick him up for a suplex or whatever and let Starks drop behind him, turn around, boot him in the gut, grab it, and do it again. Instead... Hobbs, more when Starks was still trying to do it, Hobbs was still trying to go with it, and they fell in a fucking heap. And, you know, and then finally the finish. QT tried to trip. Hobbs hit a spine buster and got a cover, but referee Aubrey Ed was distracted by QT, and he had a pocket full of oats with him. And so she wouldn't count the cover that she didn't see. So then Hobbs got up and argued with QT. I mean, get down. You're what are you you're fucking up? And Starks came from behind and hit a tackle, and QT Hobbs went into QT, QT to the floor. And then Starks hit a spear on Hobbs, one, two, three. So then he got the fuck out of there. But then obviously Hobbs was mad at QT, and QT's trying to explain, and Hobbs shoves QT down. And then gets into it with Solo and Spinebuster Solo, and the people liked this, and then was going to kill QT, but the girl rolled in and begged him not to do it, and he left. I think he should have given her a bump, too, just for the sake of it. But hopefully that, okay, if he's blown these goofballs off and he's not going to be associated with them anymore, that's fine. But did he turn babyface or did he just realize that he had excess baggage in his corner? Because now he's been babyface, then heel, then babyface, then heel. So are they switching him again? Hopefully he'll just be 
badass powerhouse Hobbs without all of these people in the corner, but they can't be, he can't work a program with QT or solo. I think this was just the way maybe somebody's come to their sanity and finally they've separated them from these, the individuals. I mean, clearly they need to get Hobbs away from QT and his crew. Again, the show opened with those Saturday night's main event promos with Hobbs, with QT and these people with him. They're trying as hard as they can with this blonde woman with the voice for whatever reason, because she's here with this. She's in the acclaimed stuff. I don't know who's her fan there. I don't know what's going on with that. And who's Q- she fanning? And QT's been stuffed onto this show since the very beginning. <laughs> stuffed onto this. He's been stuffed onto or into this show since the very beginning. <laughs> and I have very little faith that that's going to go away. Worked in like the green bean casserole at Thanksgiving dinner. So that's why I don't have much faith that the powerhouse Hobbs thing is over. Because things linger on and QT will still want to be his friend or want to be out there with him for this weird undefined relationship that doesn't make much sense. All of a sudden he's managing him and then Hobbs was at his fake TV show and then they don't even do that anymore. <laughs> I don't even know. I think it but, got canceled. But all these people are still hanging out together. I guess they're all unemployed and they need a they're, thing to do. No, you know what they're doing? <laughs> Their TV show got canceled, but they're like Kramer when he found the Merv Griffin show set. They just got it in their living room. Yeah. And they're just having guests come in and introduce them in their... And what's what's more AEW than that? But no, that's that's the problem. I think they're going to keep going with this somehow. Because all of a sudden, Solo's out there. This guy hasn't been involved in any of this shit. All of a sudden, he's out there. So And do you, do you think they need to change his name now that there's a more prominent Solo? It was like, in music, was there like allowed to be a, a jobber share? No, there was only one share. There was no other. Share. Yeah, so that's what I'm saying. We a solo's taken now, bud. Anyway, <laughs> Miro did a pre-tape. Apparently, he has won the showdown with God, and nobody can hurt him now. You know, I don't really know what the fuck he's saying, but it, it, in short bursts, it sounds good when he says it. It's almost like he said something, and then they translated it, and he's reading the translation as opposed yeah. to whatever he meant to say. No, he's going some. Look, this guy has something in his head he's been trying to get out there in these promos. I cut a song, and I want to sing it. Even before his hiatus, remember, he was in, like, a bright room, like, arguing yes. with God, and now he's upset with God. We don't know why exactly none of this. Can think- we get a preacher out to explain, like when they, in The Exorcist, when they call the specialist in to explain, well, here's what has to be done. Can we get somebody to explain this battle that he's had with God and what the rules were and the parameters and who won and how? And also, he's not like sitting in his room saying it. It's like, I have a problem with God. Get me a soundstage. Like, well, where is this little set he's on? I think it'd be more effective just having him out there every week kicking the shit out of someone, but they are in Canada. That's a good point. Maybe he didn't want to come back a second week. <laughs> I don't know. So then Julia Hart wrestled, was her name Bambi? I, Bambi Hope? Bambi Hall? Bambi Hole? Bambi something. It wasn't Bambi Hole. I know. <laughs> I thought I heard Hope, but I thought I heard Hall, and I was trying to combine. Oh. <laughs> Was Julia using a Stevie Nicks song for her entrance music because it was some entrance music of a woman singing? And she looks like Stevie Nicks, so and Tony pays money. She doesn't look like Stevie Nicks. She dresses somewhat similar to Stevie Nicks at a certain point. Well, but boy, howdy, she's got it down. 
But what do you think about her doing that? Because, I mean, that's kind of the Scarlet thing of you have the song where you're singing it and you come to the ring and you're Oh, is she singing her own song? Oh, I don't know. You know, probably not. I'm just assuming because she was lip syncing it like she was. It wasn't well, Stevie I, Nicks. I, I lip sync every time I hear Stevie Nicks sing. You do? I've got, doesn't everybody? No. Because I've been afraid of changes because I built my That's life. the song you go to? That's your go-to Stevie Nicks song? Well, it's beautiful. It's purdy. She's a, a little songbird. Oh, my God. But they, hey, you know what? They were in Canada. Maybe it was Anne Murray singing the song for Julia Hart. The house of black is with you where you go and lead you. I don't know the words to songbird all that well. Spread your tiny wings oh, come fly on. away. I know that one. All right. Cover my ears with my tiny wings. So <laughs> I don't. <laughs> and then and then fill your mouth up with your tiny balls. <laughs> <laughs> So I don't know if Julia is Mildred Burke, but next to Bambi, she was. She looked like Piper Niven's poorer sister. And Julia won this one fairly easily. And uh, any any further comments? I mean, there's not much to say. The fans are into Julia. It was quick. She did nothing wrong. You know, First, she- do no harm. Yeah, I mean, there's nothing much to add here. I mean, the fans are in the, the the fact that fans are reacting to her. She may be the most over member of the House of Black. Well, again, that's like being the nicest guy in prison, but we'll go with it. It's a compliment. Depends what prison. That's true. Minimum security. Minimum secu- or maxim- yeah, yeah, there you go. See? The country club type of thing. Yeah. There could be a few fine folks in there. I hear it's very nice. Yeah. Well, maybe why don't you go and check it out and let me know. I'll wait for you to report back before I go. <laughs> so Malachi Black and Andre are upset at each other because Malachi Black. Now, let's see. Malachi, he has the face paint, but he has stolen and he has a mask that he uses in his interviews. But Andre has a mask that he wears out to the ring and then takes it off. But they have stolen that mask that Andre takes off. And they did a promo back and forth about this thing. And Andre. He talked as slowly and clearly as he ever has, and it sounded better, but it took quite a while. It was almost like you were playing the tape on one half speed. It sounded like Andre on Somas. Um, I'm not going to say anything bad about him. He was trying hard, and I actually thought he was effective here because... He's upset about something, and he's showing that the problem is what he's upset about. Whatever this spooky Malachi Black... Again, I need a cameraman. Where are they that he's in a chair sitting sideways away from the camera dramatically while he talks about this nonsensical feud? Again, another one of these, I want you to be better than you are for unknown reasons i don't know yeah i always want my opponents to be tougher than they normally are when they fight me malachi black has a look malachi black is athletic we've seen him look impressive in the ring malachi black should not have anything to do with his own creative ever 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 there you go because it's i think that's the problem yeah and andre I, i kid him but he did a good job here because he did try to talk legibly And he explained 
the mask and its importance to his family to blah, blah, blah. Of course, what we're doing here is we're explaining the, it's a heist movie and we're explaining the value of what was stolen after it was stolen instead of beforehand to set it up why people would want to steal it. And the other guy's argument is like, I stole your mask so you can discover who you are. What? Why? What is that? <laughs> I want to kick your ass. You're in my way. If I move up the ladder, I make money. If I make money and get the belt, I'll have more money. And then I can do whatever I want to work a Roman Reigns schedule. That works. Not, <laughs> I want you to discover who you are. So I'll do that by stealing your ancient mask. Save it. But anyway, that was a brief little back and forth there because now we get to talk about what made the whole show worthwhile and there were good things other things that we'll talk about but this was worth the price of admission alone as they used to say ftr and gin and juice and now we know the eliminator match thank god there are actual announcers on this program that kind of explained it better huh? than we have heard so far. It's an eliminated match. They get eliminated, and if they don't get eliminated, they get another match. And if that match wins, they don't get eliminated. They get eliminated. Something like that. Yeah. No. Fortunately, instead of a fucking idiot fake person with a sock on his face, we have actual human beings with real faces doing the announcing. So the eliminator match. If they win the challengers here, then they get a title match. But if they don't win, if they get beat, then they can never have a title match against these champions. That's what it is. So that makes a little more sense. Okay. A tag team match with talent. And I mean, from the start of this thing, the lockup and the struggle in the corner, you can see that it's a level above most of the other people in the company. And finally, we see now that Jay White and Juice Robinson, they can work. They've just, you know, we remember I said, oh, I'd like to see this guy impress me. Well, now he has because he finally had a fucking opponent. Juice, we've been impressed with. But they also, I'm not going to go blow by blow on this tag team match because especially as it headed down the stretch, you couldn't keep up with it or, or describe it. But the flavor of it was... They had a modern-style tag match in terms of the pace and the action, but no furniture, no dives. They actually tagged most of the time. They didn't bury the referee unnecessarily. They not only did wrestling spots, but they worked in between the spots with the heels backing off and begging off or the baby faces being aggressive or working the people. And they paced this thing so that they had momentum-changing moments at the break spots, but not just the requisite, somebody's going to do a dive out of the ring and the announcer's going to say, what will happen? Blech. They actually pitched to the breaks. They acknowledged that things are going on. And so the after the first segment of this, they, they allowed them to go five minutes to get you set into it. They set the hook. You're a little bit involved in it now. And then FTR do the classic tag team do -si do and hit double Germans. Instead of a do -si do and then a punches or ass bumps, they modified it, modernized it to Germans. The place blew. They loved that. And they went to a break. And when they come back, they're getting heat on Dax, and Dax is taking the Bret Hart buckles. 
but he's firing back and then he tags cash and again gin and juice were working like heels and juice hit cash with a hot shot that he went straight over the top rope which looked fucking excellent and then they got some heat on cash and it was a long good old school regular set of heat on cash where the Heels did quick tags in and out, and the babyface tried to fight to the corner. And finally, he got to the corner, but Dax was busy with juice. And Dax got nailed off the apron, and then Cash fought both heels, but got backdropped over the top rope, and they went to the break again, but after nine more minutes of action. So once again, we're fucking reasonably hooked, and this thing is cooking. And then they come back. And now Cash and Juice are both down, and Juice tags fucking Jay, and Jay charges, and Cash moves and dives for a hot tag. We actually saw one. And Dax makes a big comeback, and they start with their false finishes and two counts. And the people are holy shit chanting. And then they went through an incredible sequence of events that I can't again begin to detail at a hundred miles an hour nailing everything the crowd was going batshit because they were going back and forth it was they were taking them on a roller coaster ride they got a this is awesome chant Nigel and Kevin Kelly were tremendous on the call they did some incredible false finishes that you could buy every time and did you see Dax knocked the slobber out of Jay White with a power bomb and then hit him with that uppercut forearm and knocked the glob of slobber into his hair. And I was like, what the, this was a slobber knocker. And then Dax and Jay White went through the yay boo forearm and chop exchange back and forth, not standing there like strong style. That to me was the biggest mistake in the match. That had no place in my eyes being there. And that took, well, that, but took they, it away. That, that was a ridiculous place to put that spot. They were trying to fight, though. They weren't standing there and pointing to their chest and going, go on, hit me. They were yeah. swinging back and forth. Still, I know it's overdone, but it's ubiquitous they, now. Yeah, no, it's, it's ubiquitous. That is a good word. It's also prevalent. Too prevalent. Over prevalent. And ubiquitous. Hyper prevalent. That's right. But nevertheless, that's the next NXT star, hyper prevalent, hyper prevalent. So (laughs) Dax then rolls Jay up, but Juice pulls him off and hits his inverted DDT finish. One, two, three. And there was another nine minute segment. Twenty three minutes of the match were on the air and it was twenty nine minutes bell to bell. Not one dive, not one piece furniture. I don't remember ever fighting on the floor. They took bumps to the floor, but I don't remember fights out there. So what I want to know is with all those, again, if Uncle Dave is giving five stars to the plumber for these multiple man bullshit matches where he's unprofessional, looks like shit, his work is see-through and phony, he cuts himself on camera, and they use every fucking piece of furniture in the building, bury the referee countless times, and can't use the ring because they're in the floor of the bleachers, if that gets five stars, then what, when you have four athletes that look like wrestlers, that know what they're doing, that have talent, that scorch the fucking ring with an incredible display of tag team wrestling involving no furniture, no dives, no gymnastics, no burying the referee, no fighting in the crowd, 
and no on-camera blade jobs. How does that not get five stars? What do you think it'll get, Brian? Oh, I don't know. I mean, we'll talk about Dave's rating system on the drive-thru this week, but he says that people should be happy with just four and three-quarter stars. It's the same thing as five <laughs> stars, except it's not. But we'll talk more about that in the future. This was an excellent match. But in it, it all, it all seriousness, it, you know, when people see something like this with people who are good at what they do showing it, how can you compare that to this amateur class bullshit that we are fed by the other fucking side of this thing? There are people who like the gymnastics aspect of wrestling more than they like the physical wrestling part of wrestling. They just make okay. Not well, want I to don't see it. I don't see the plumber doing any gymnastics either, but well, he does true. everything else. But this was an excellent match, and the other thing is it went long, and it didn't feel like it. Yeah, we were caught up in it, and part of the reason is the commentary, and that's a big thing. You want to talk about a match? Something that elevates a match from being four and a half stars to five stars. Let's talk about the commentary here. Nigel is really good, although to me, sometimes he feels like he's unnaturally being a heel. He's better just being a heelish color guy. Yeah. Kevin Kelly, I said it before, I'll say it again. He's doing the best work of his career. And when you look at the landscape and every other commentator out there today, not to take anything away from Ian Riccoboni and Caprice Coleman, but Kevin Kelly calling this match and these guys working this kind of match made it feel like you were watching sports-based wrestling. And it, to me, and this rarely happens, it held me better through the commercial breaks. I guess knowing that the voice coming back was going to just be explaining things, this kind of match, this kind of action, I don't know when it's going to end how it's going to end, what's going to happen. I don't want to miss anything. I thought it was great. Went a long time. The fans were into it. Again, the only thing to me that brought the fans down was the yay, boo, whatever you want to call it, the spot in the, at the end of the match where him, Dax, and Jay White are just standing there and they slowed it down. And to me, it didn't look, it didn't look right. It didn't feel right. And it also brought the fans down a little bit. Other than that, excellent match. Even with a little sloppiness at the beginning, it felt like. These guys are all just learning to work with each other, I guess. Excellent match. And between the match, the action, the commentary, this is the tone a lot of us want from this Saturday night show. And I had a really good night because I had this show and then the last Mets late night game because they were in San Diego <laughs> at 10-10. But it felt like a good transition. It felt like I was watching a sports show and then I'm going to go watch baseball. And hey, well, not not every time I watch wrestling can I just, you know, it doesn't feel like a good fit right into the next thing. We are able to actually start looking forward to, rather than dreading, like I do every Thursday morning when I say, okay, I'll get this out of the way, I'll watch Dynamite from last night, and I'll fast forward through all the bullshit. This is not a chore. I still can't stay up till 10 o'clock on Saturday night most of the time, but it's not something I look unforward to that i look to with displeasure on sunday morning watching collision because i know i every show has had a, a good uh, let's uh, the first show had the great match second week had a really good match last week was a little odd but still had a good match and then this was incredible and it's always usually involving ftr punk or both but 
Again, FTR, let's just call a spade a spade. They've had the best six-man tag match ever on AEW television. They've had the best tag team matches ever on AEW television. And they're the AEW talent that's had the best tag matches of all time in other companies with the Briscoes last year. So just put them on every week. And we'll see what happens. But here's the problem. And someone actually put this in the Cult of Cornette Facebook group, and it follows up on something I said when we recorded yesterday, the other part of the show. Chris Waite in the Cult of Cornette Facebook group, since winning the AEW tag belts on April 5th, FTR have had two tag matches, and they lost one. (laughs) That's the problem. Why aren't these guys, instead of a blind eliminator tournament, I just want tag title matches. That's it. Well, that's what we're going to get next week because they challenged, Jay and and, uh, Juice challenged FTR to two out of three falls next week. And I can't wait to see that and hope it goes longer than this one did. What do you do with that? Do you start the show with it? Well, I don't know what else they've got or what else they're planning, et cetera. So if, you know, but, (sighs) you know, after this week, it's a great match. If this went a half hour, I mean, you got to think there's no way two out of three falls is going to go less than that. No, that's why I'm saying I hope it goes longer. But I don't know whether you start with that or do you start with, because again, there's going to be the finals or next week of the tournament. Well, we're going to get to the finals of the Owen tournament in a second of what I think that may be done or possible things that could be done. Um, Scorpio Sky and Action Andretti. <laughs> Action Andretti, after the star-making win over Chris Jericho, was presented already in the ring with no entrance, and Scorpio Sky came back and got a good win and a short match with a break in it and hit him with his finish, one, two, three. So, and I'm not saying they shouldn't. I don't know if I would have put a break in a match that short, um, but Scorpio Sky, if they're going to use him and he's a good worker, needs wins, and Action Andretti, as we predicted when it happened, has been completely forgotten about. It's not ready for prime time. Your thoughts? You know, again, when you think back to the timing of it, it was all so interesting where, you know, Chris Jericho coming out of All Out was getting a lot of criticism from a lot of places, especially here on this show, correct criticism, mm-hmm. and responded with the cult, uh, being one of the people that got Colt Cabana on AEW TV, and then he was going to prove a lot of people wrong. By making someone. You guys say I don't make anyone. I just leech off these young Mm -hmm. guys. Watch this. You've never even heard of Action Andretti before. And we haven't seen him since. (laughs) And like you said, not even an entrance. He's just in the ring. He beat Chris Jericho on Wednesday night. What was the follow-up? Everyone wants to defend the booking of either AEW or specifically the Chris Jericho segments. What was the follow-up? Was it worth it? Did it make sense? Was it a bad idea at the time that no one would, not no one, that some people didn't want to point out, but other people did, and now it's apparent that it was a bad idea. Nothing against Action Andretti. He was a pawn in this whole Jericho game. I swear to God, I was about to say, he was a prawn in the game. That's exactly why, and he probably thought he was in for a big push and superstardom, and he was just so Jericho could show, yeah, Remember Hulk Hogan did a job for Billy Kidman or something? But then Kidman kept, people said, like, oh, it didn't really help Kidman. Yeah, but he kept getting used on TV. 
<laughs> in that way, it helped him or whoever it was. I think that's the example you're talking about. Or, you know, it was, uh, was it Kevin Nash or Scott Hall put over Rey Mysterio? It was one of those matches, but they were still used and they were still stars. Actually, Andretti, he's been on Dark and Dark's been canceled. <laughs> oh, no, it, it's not been canceled. They just decided to uh, make it darker. All righty, we get to the main event, and this is the one that they sold the program on, obviously, Samoa Joe and CM Punk for the Owen Hart Tournament semifinal. And somebody told me on Twitter that I was not crazy, that the initial bracket that I saw, I thought it looked like it would be Joe and Punk in the finals. And it's not, but somebody said that the original bracket they saw was, it was the same thing and somehow it was changed. And I don't know for whether that's true or not, but I would love clarification, just so I know if I have a brain tumor. But nevertheless, this was the main event. Joe comes out and then, like Mussolini, in the wilds of Canada. And, you know, they had to follow, basically, I know Scorpio Sky would, was right there, but they had to follow the match, FTR and Gin and Juice, and nobody could follow that match, but it was a completely different kind of match between Joe and Punk in that they were they had the people. The people wanted to see it. It was over. They were in no hurry. They didn't open up 100 miles an hour and have nowhere to go for 20 minutes. They did the stare down. They, they did the feeling out because it had the big fight feel. And the story they were telling earlier was Punk was evading Joe's chops, right? He'd always duck it or get out of the way or whatever. But then Joe did the deal where he walks off on the crossbody and Punk crashed. And then Joe started landing the chops and Punk would sell them big. And then the jabs and Punk could fight from underneath because he's the smaller guy. Joe's the big bully. He's on top. He's a good heel. He taunts the fans. He has the facial expressions that we're having a wrestling match again. Imagine that, two on the same show. And then they took a break, but when they came back, Punk started fighting back. Both of them were tired and selling. Punk, his mouth was bleeding. I don't believe he bladed his tongue, so I don't think he's got Moxley's disease, but they were, they were landing some shots. And then Joe gets the sleeper, rear naked choke, whatever. Punk gets a belly to back. Boom. Then they go back and forth. And Punk with a series of knees in the corner and a clothesline, the elbow off the top and gets a two count. And then again, they go back and forth. Punk goes for the GTS and Joe drops, gets the cross face. Punk gets the ropes. Joe hits that quick power slam, gets a two count. And then because of the precondition... With Punk earlier at the top of the show, the people are chanting, Owen Hart, Owen Hart, which is great to hear. And then finally, they have more back and forth. Joe went for the sleeper. Punk dropped out, reached his legs up, hooked Joe, rolled him up, one, two, three. And so Punk advances. And both of them were still selling the result and then recovering. And then they milked it and stared at each other. And then Joe comes out and offers his hand. And Punk looks at him and takes it and they shake and the people cheer. <laughs> and then Joe snatches him into the sleeper. And did you see, as soon as they went down, the bell started ringing to give it some 
sense of urgency. And the referee was in there, and Kevin Kelly sounds like Lance Russell. Oh, come on! And it he snatched a sleeper out of a handshake, and it sounded and looked like a dirty goddamn deal. And Joe puts Punk out, and then rolls out and gets a chair, but before he can do damage, here comes FTR. And then the last day is Starks comes out to survey what's going on. And they had a good match, but this that's why I was saying this is it to me, this is billed for an eventual bigger Punk and Joe match. Because now Punk and Starks is the final. Well, that's right now the way it's presented to baby faces. But will Joe cost Punk the win of the cup out of heat over this without Starks knowing so that Starks is still nominally a baby face. And then could Starks get mad at Joe and say, well, goddamn, I want to fight you Samoa Joe. You wrote, you tarnished my win. And then punk make it cost Joe a match with Ricky Starks. Starks gets a win over Joe, but it's because of there's things you can do out of all of this to eventually want Punk and Joe to collide again on a, in a bigger match on a bigger stage. We'll see what happens. Let's talk about, um, and by the way, great match, great commentary, great match. I'm happy that we're going to hopefully see more from these two. Ricky Starks, though. So he comes out there at the end. You're not really mentioning him, and you know we're talking more about the future of Punk versus Joe. What do you do with Starks? He's now one of the baby faces on that show. If Powerhouse Hobbs turns... He's a babyface. I don't know what Scorpio Sky is officially. I guess maybe a heel. But Ricky Starks versus Punk, who would you have go over to win the tournament? And secondly, any consideration you think should be put into a Ricky Starks heel turn? <sighs> have they ridden the wave of him as a babyface, especially if he's not going to be a top babyface as far Poss as they can? Possibly because they keep... They keep ruining their own waves. In a one-on-one -on -one match, fairly and squarely, Punk has to beat Starks. In a one-on-one -on -one match, if Starks was to turn heel and fuck Punk, I think it's early or misplaced for that. In a one-on-one -on -one match, if Joe causes Punk to lose to Starks, whether Starks knows about it and turns heel or doesn't know and remains a baby face, that works for me. Um, that's the thing. I think if Punk wins this, there could be some backlash from some segments that have already been preconditioned. Well, I, well now he has to come in and win the Owen Cup, and Owen wouldn't have liked him. Well, he would have, but Owen wouldn't have liked him. Whatever. And Punk doesn't need the Owen Cup. But Punk could certainly get a good program out of the guy that fucks him out of it. But right now, Starks is, I know you want to elevate Starks, but I don't think he's ready there unless it's a TV match thing, but Punk would have to win. Punk would have to win and it couldn't be a long program. So I'm pretty sure with the heads involved in this Saturday night program, there's something that's probably going to make sense, but that we're not thinking about, or is going to be in some element of the parameters I just talked about. 
that's going to happen rather than Punk just winning the thing and being carried out of the ring on somebody's shoulders, possibly. In terms of what he's been saying in the promos or anything, now we saw him injure Roderick Strong, even though Roddy's more part of the Adam Cole, MJF canon. And now this with CM Punk seemingly leading to bigger things. What is Samoa Joe's motivation? Well, again, if everybody had that has gotten to this point had had proper build from the start, Joe always works best when he's presented as just the Samoan submission machine and the fucking badass that doesn't put up with bullshit and bullies people and uses his size. And he could be a dominant heel on a champion of some description and on any program. So hopefully he's going to stay in the top singles mix on collision. I don't care what he does on Wednesday nights. And, uh, you know, again, with Punk as firmly as the top babyface and Joe definitely at or near the top of the heel list on this program, that's why I say their their paths are going to collide, no pun intended, again. And Joe's motivation is just he's got to want to win and to beat as many people as he can beat. And it would help if there was a good babyface secondary champion in this company, but there there's MJF is the champion and everybody else in the company has a fucking belt. And I know Joe's got the ring of honor TV title ring of honor doesn't have television. So that tends to compromise that somewhat. I would, I would, if I were operating this fucking vehicle, I would have Joe as the, Secondary, not secondary, I hate to term it that way, but the United States champion or the Intercontinental champion on this program exclusively. That's what I'd do if I were me, because we still got to get back to Punk and MJF, but that's going to take a while. Yeah, and the other problem, like you said, is everyone has a belt. Even people who aren't even wrestlers here show up with other yeah. belts. So that diminishes everything, but... It happened on this show with uh, Willow Nightingale and Athena. Oh, I forgot about that. I was petting Harley's belly. They're talking about Willow losing, I get, was it the IWGP women's title? She just lost that in Japan to Julia. So they're talking about this other title loss, which I don't know if it had been referenced before on the show. And then Athena walks in with another belt because she's not the AEW women's champion. Was she Ring of Honor women's champion? Again, there's just too many champions on these shows. But overall, Excellent program. We have no ratings. It's the weekend, but we will update that, I guess, on the drive-thru this week, which hopefully, I feel like our podcasts now are like Jim Crockett Promotions early pay-per-views. Hopefully, we're going to have full coverage this week. I think we will have full penetration of the marketplace by the end of this week. Well, and the marketplace better be ready for that, too, because they're going to get penetrated like they've never been penetrated before. But with protection. Do we have protection on this new server processor? We've got lots process of server. We've got lots of protection now. Yes. Are we protected now? Very good. Somebody else better be protected when we get finished telling this story. Anyway, um, closing thoughts on an uh, again one of the better wrestling programs that AEW has ever produced. They've had four of these now, and three of them have been pretty doggone good overall. I think the big takeaways from Collision are the tone of the matches. 
the length of the main event matches, and the commentary. And it creates a different feeling and a different vibe from Dynamite. I look forward to seeing what this show could be when it's in the States. Nothing against our Canadian friends, but when it's in hot wrestling cities here in the States. Well, when it's in any city with a larger crowd. And because the, the, the early tapings have been, you know, snake bit with their promotional methods. Yeah. Now, again, this is a Saturday night show, so you're going to run into a lot of issues with other companies' pay-per-view events and preemptions. That's the only thing that scares me about the future of the show. But we'll see, uh, we'll see how everything else works out. All righty. Well, speaking of the future of the show, ours is done. Is that correct? Today it is. Correct. Today it is. We are done. This show has no future, only a past. The next show we do has a future, but after we do it, it won't. See, it's a very pithy comment. And you could hear it early before we record it by paying a lot of money. Yes. All sorts of money. To BR549. Just text all your money to BR549 and you will be able to have access to these programs before we do them. Otherwise, in the meantime, thank you, fuck you, and bye-bye, everybody.